Click the button. Uh, so now we are live. This is great. Um, so what's up, Lucky Lex, and welcome. Good, I'm good. Welcome to the show. My name is Holden Stefan Roy, and this is Bridge the Gap, the show where we talk to super interesting people such as yourself and we walk through your life and we extract knowledge nuggets from your experience while learning all the stuff that you'll never find on google because psh, i don't know if you've tried googling people but believe it or not there's not often a lot of good details out there um so just to get like started with it can you just let us know just real quickly where you were born like where you start your life I'm born in uh, Montreal. I'm born in Montreal uh, from uh, francophone parents, but uh, my parents divorced like before I was one year old, and my mom then was with a New Yorker till I was five. And we traveled around the world. We went to well all around the states. He had an import-export business, so we went like India, Afghanistan, uh, Switzerland, France, uh, Ibiza, Spain, uh, Morocco. Uh, this uh, I was like. A hippie baby, you know, like a cotton diaper, long blonde hair, and uh, so I grew up in the world, you know, and I grew up uh, very much in the English upbringing yeah. because of my stepdad. Yeah, this is a fantastic segue into my like first opening question because it, it requires a little bit of context like that so that people know what we're talking about. But I'm gonna ask it. It's a little bit of a story, and then when it lands, we're gonna we're gonna explore what you just said with more detail. Um, so it kind of starts with my girlfriend and uh she's washing the dishes and she got her phone playing that black eyed peace song the, i got a feeling Ooh. Mm -hmm. she's like bopping around she's vibing she's doing her thing um and i'm watching her and i'm thinking about this song right because it's like chores music right it's that it's, it's exercise music now that's what yeah. this song has become in our lives and i started thinking about how just a decade ago we were all in the club super drunk dancing in circles to that same very song and the context of that song in our lives was just completely different it was just like the party song the fun night when you're out and escaping reality and then it became the song when you embrace reality which is just super interesting to me how the same song over the course of a decade changed its role inside of our lives so yeah. drastically and that music can evolve over time in such a way in the same way i started thinking about all the cardi b's and stuff and all the people in the clubs and how they don't even know it yet but they're going to soon be doing dishes to these same very songs <laughs> and then i yeah. found out just everybody's doing dishes to these songs already it's just already what's happened so everything that's a club banger is a dishes song just nobody really knew that um with that it made me think about our own musical journeys, right? Because, like, songs have their journeys, and that means we have to have our own journeys, and that means we evolve and all this stuff in the kind of the same way the music does. And I find that, like, where most people talk about their musical upbringings and stuff, they start in, like, that adolescent era when they're, like, forming their identity and start picking the different things that they like. But really, like, yeah. our musical journeys don't start there. They just start when we're born because there's always going to be some level of music around us in our lives. Um, yeah. Like I can remember being like four or five years old and my dad's got all these gray boxes, the amp and the radios and the tape decks and everything. And they're like put together with wires and the speakers are all around the house. And he would bust those Led Zeppelin tapes of his yeah. and whatever else he had there at nighttime. It was the nineties MC Mario music styles of the EDMs and whatnot. Um, yeah. My mom's was into like discos and tech or musicals. It wasn't my favorite, but she was into her vibes and whatnot. At Christmas yeah. time, we'd have like this 
this EDM remix of Christmas Bangers album that got played only on Christmas Day type. So like music just has all these different things in our lives and they're just so like pivotal to who we end up becoming as artists so much later on. And I think hearing your music now and hearing how worldly your inception is, it could definitely be said that there might be some influences to your early upbringing and the sounds you heard into everything that came later. So I'm hoping you can bring us back to well, as many of these early memories as you can bring us through where you can describe like what it's like to be you with the sounds and just going around the world and just seeing these different cultures so young. Like you must have been exposed to so much shit. Yeah, that's it. Well, first of all, a funny story. Uh, my mom, so she came from Saguenay, uh, 500 K is north of uh, Montreal. So when she was, uh, she was born in 56, I think. So she was like uh, an adolescent in the 60s. She was like a groupie, you know. There wasn't a lot of live shows that would go up there. So she she started following this guy uh, that had this cover band. He would just go on all regions, you know, to the farthest, farthest regions. He was a guy from Montreal, but would go up there and play whatever, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, all the popular stuff. And they, they would never hear, like, Anglophone stuff, you know, live. So she fucking fell in love with the, the, this band, started following this guy everywhere, and he was a cousin of my father. So that so I, I so I'm kind of like the the whole origin. I mean, I'm born in music, you know. And then traveling, of course, you're exposed to to food, man. I'm a chef. You're exposed to all these these foods, man, in India, Morocco, all that these spices and these rhythms, all different, very different than American rhythms. And then I moved. Uh, so that was in, as a baby. I, I'm imprinted for that. And then I moved at five years old to Miami. And this is like beginning of the 80s. My, my first love for music on my own, like, I, I want this cassette. It was Thriller. Like, I'm old, man. I'm, a, I'm 44, man. I've been doing, since 2000, I've been doing my own original music. I had many bands, and uh, not doing cover, but really original music since 2000. I'm old school. And uh, I fell in love with fucking, like, the Thriller and, uh, and uh, Michael Jackson because it, it was so huge. And as a child, I was just so impressed how, how he can embody music as well physically as 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 every everything about him was was music there was a movement to every note you know and then the first show i, I saw was coming back to montreal at six years old my first show was the jackson victory tour that was the, the farewell tour the jackson five because thriller was so big that they had to like close that door and put the energy on on mj you know but uh, that was my that's my earliest memories man and you want right, to? I'll, I'll close this story. I'll close this story with an incredible fucking moment in my life. Okay, and this is one of these stories people don't believe. So my mom's kind of like a hustler. She's a cute woman, and we have a fucking ticket up in the uh, in the seats. But we, she goes to the floor. She talks to the first security, second security. We go on and on and on. We end up like six, seven row of the Olympic Stadium, Jackson, the farewell tour. And there's one available seat. My mom asked this this big man if I can sit on his on his his knees. And we're so we're like six row. My mom's sitting there. It's not like we don't have tickets for this. And I'm on this big man, and I'm just watching the show, the lights. I've never seen a show, you know. And then it's the breakdown. It's the Michael Jackson part of the the Jackson Five. So he does his solo stuff, and he does his whole dance routine. At the end of his dance routine, I fuck you not. He does like three, four turns on himself. He takes his fucking hat, and knowing him, I don't want to go into fucking like some 
obscure shit. But knowing how much he had, you know, love for youth and all that, he probably always spotted someone young when he he, he threw the hat. He throws the fucking hat. I'm not joking you. Time stops. This is one of my earliest memories. I just see fucking the lights, the spotlights, and the fucking hat coming towards me, coming towards me, coming towards me. The guy I'm sitting on grabs the fucking Michael Jackson's hat, and he looks at me like a Disney movie, and like is gonna give it to me. Two rows behind him, some guy jumps on him. I fucking hit the floor. My mom grabs me. These fuckers start fighting. Security stops them. They get expelled from the show. I never get the hat. But for me, that was a blessing, man. That's a, one of my earliest memories of my life. And that seeing that show and that the lights and everything, I was like, wow, I want to be an artist. I want to be a performer. And for me, that was a benediction. That was a sign, you know? So that, that's some crazy shit. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a that that's amazing i wasn't expecting you to be involved in an altercation at a jackson five show because michael wanted to give you the hat definitely was not how i expected it to start but that's excellent so already you're like let's say six seven years old or whatever yeah you've traveled to more countries than most of us you've lived in more cities than most of us uh well not most most of us but you've lived in a few cities and like you managed to go see your first show, which is pretty incredible. And and not even like in the nosebleeds and shit. No, like right up front. That's serious. That you, that's a blessing that you even got to see the Jackson Five like that, because you know For everything sure, changes man. after that, man. For sure. So so when you say that gave you the bug to become a performer, then did you start like doing your like at home performances, and did you like evolve into like singing or something? I like always. That? I always, from that point, uh, so this is like my, I'm five, six in my earliest memories. Uh, I remember I, I was like, uh, I, if I was born like 20 years later, they would have gave me Redolin and shit. I was a, like a ADD. I, I was, I could not concentrate in school more than 30 seconds. I just zone off and play with my whatever. I'm out in space, you know. And so I remember that uh, the bathtub was a big thing for me, and I was always inventing songs that i remember that i wasn't so much into like repeating the songs that the, the traditional baby songs and shit so i remember i would always invent shit and i had this fantasy also of uh breathing underwater so i would kind of like pu push myself to keep my breath and then i would come back and i, I would fucking invent these songs in the bathtub and then when i got like, my, my first babysitter he was a, a kid like uh, 16 right he had a grand piano and i remember him uh, playing uh elise uh, -na 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 -na. and I really liked that that as a child and I remember inventing lyrics to that you know like the little dog he went to see the cat and then the cat he said hello and I was like fucking like six eight years old you know so for me like inventing my own music was natural as a child all right so you were already getting into your freestyle songwriting game at like six post Michael Jackson because it just kind of went down that path and now but on top of that you have like the kid imagination and play adding like story elements to it that's like super nifty man like super nifty so as you're going through this <clears throat> do you like what do you have to do you draw or anything like that as well were you going down that path were you like a multi-artist kid or was it more like you were just focused on the music it was really more music i, I didn't i didn't draw a lot it was more like just like crazy stories at one point i wanted to be an inventor so i kind of drew stuff i didn't know how to draw <laughs> but uh 
No, it was just I wanted to create my own things. That was the focus, and it was music. It was really music. That always spoke to me until this day. That's, for me, the best way to communicate with human beings is music, you know. So as you're going through, you're back in Montreal at this point. Yeah. Montreal. What, what part of Montreal are you growing up in? Uh, right, right now, uh, uh, at that point, I mean, I came back to uh, Montreal. I was like eight or nine. I stayed like three years in Miami, started school there in English. And I came back to Montreal. And I would do the, um, for my whole adolescence, uh, childhood adolescence, back and forth between Montreal and uh, Saguenay where my mom's family comes from. So back and forth, the small town, the bigger town, you know. So that was my experience. That must uh what's that like? Like so like how, how like you would spend like the summers in one place or was it just like Oh, uh, I mean the, my my uh, I moved a lot, my, my I moved a lot, my situation was the most stable after the States. So I I lived with my grandma and stuff. It was kinda weird in the small town because like literally in those years in the eighties, end of the eighties, uh no one spoke English and I my mind was like an Anglophone, but my family was Francophone and I was living in Francophone environments. And uh, because of the 101 uh, law, I couldn't go to English school. So I, I, it was hard. Like, it was hard to uh, to switch my mind to French. And, and to this day, I, I dream in English, you know. So the, the language is, for me, was always, I, I really felt that. That whole, like, battle, that language thing in Quebec that we, we, we go through. So, yeah, uh, but it was, thing. It was great. I mean, I have a great family and a great mother and a, had a nice upbringing overall, yeah. Um, so as you're growing up with it, um, and you're inventing songs, do you like get into musical instruments or production or you start dubbing stuff? Like, tell us a bit more about like how you get into music more like seriously. Yeah. So that's it. So, uh, after like the States, I, my mom was listening to a lot of like Motown and stuff like that at those years, the end of the eighties. Then I come back to uh, Quebec in the nineties in this little town in Shikutsumi, uh, was a lot of metalheads. So that for us to like a young preteen teen to kind of find my 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 things that I want to listen to, not my mom's shit and stuff, or what's on what's on the radio. Of course, I got into whatever was popular and doing fuck uh, Vanilla Ice, MC Hammer, whatever. And, and oh fuck, Run DMC. The one thing was like preteen and all that. I went to my first little teeny parties, and it wasn't so like. Uh, it wasn't like others. Oh, we wouldn't label as much as today. It wasn't like, oh, this is rock, this is that. It was kind of like it's music and it's good. So you go to a party and be like Samantha Fox, and then it'd be a song by Run DMC, and then it'd be fucking Bon Jovi, and then it'd be a song, whatever. It was all mixed up. So that was kind of cool that we were exposed to a lot of shit. I didn't know. I was listening to hip hop, and I, I didn't. I, I, the first really song I got into was Mary Mary from fucking uh, Run DMC. I didn't know it was hip hop, you know, and then I got really into to metal because that was like uh, like some rebel shit, you know. And I, I really got into electric guitar and uh, metal, yeah, for sure. So you started playing. Um, you started playing guitar. Yeah, I'd say around uh, 15, 15, I got a, and I didn't want a acoustic. I went straight to electric, and yeah, I started buying the books of tablatures of by the by the age of like. 16 oh, one year into it i was pretty much obsessed by slayer I was, Whoa, so you had to buy tab books yeah there was no internet yeah because like i i have like a kind of i started playing bass 
in 2006 or something. So at that point, there's like cyber threat that's giving you lessons and like yeah. all this shit that's available for it. So how do you teach yourself to play bass back then or guitar? Sorry. Well, I was just I had some small courses, like kind of some small courses, and uh, then I just kind of figured out how to uh, read tabs, and then I just kind of listen and practice listen and practice you know i, I yeah, at one point i said it was like slayer you know so i had i bought the fucking uh, bc rich guitar I, I put the esp pickup on it i got the the marshall valve state I, I wanted the same setup you know and i i kind of wanted to become that kind of guitar player and a, those kind of like really fucking gnarly kind of hellish really crazy technical soul solos and 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 the practicing my this is my picking and being fast and all that but uh, i was really into skateboarding also and snowboarding so i, I guess I, I i didn't become as good as i wanted to into in guitar you know i put a little more energy at that point as an adolescent to skateboarding and snowboarding too so how'd you get into that <clears throat> so i come back to montreal like this is like uh, third grade of high school i have long hair and uh, metal t-shirts and shit I get to the school and everyone is kind of pretty straight and, and nerdy and whatever. I'm trying to find people, you know, and then uh, there's no people with long hair and all that. And uh, uh, no one listens to metal, but there's like free skate. This is before skateboarding was really popular. So that was kind of another reject thing. But uh, there was free kids that were skateboarders and they kind of had like the Tony Hawk, like half shaven with the, the, the long hair and I don't know. I started hanging out with them, and pretty soon I had bought in a I bought a skateboard, and we, we just it was fun because it was so free. We could just do it anywhere, you know. It, there wasn't so much skate parks back in in those days, and that was a big part of my my youth because that also was kind of like, well, it's freestyling, it's it, it's expression and and movement in your whole body, and and also I really learned to like uh, put much more effort than in guitar because like. You're you're kind of two or three people, and you're you can do the same move over and over and over again for five hours straight. Maybe you're just gonna land it once, but to kind of, that really built my character to like, I, I gotta do. I you be kind of obsessive in your work ethic, and you, I gotta do this. I got I cannot go home till I do this. You know, so that that yeah, that was a big part of. So you're saying that having the other people with you with the skateboarding added that level of accountability to it. Well, yeah, we encourage each other. We, we, we're such a small, little, tight, like, brotherhood. But it was like, okay, well, I'm trying this move, I'm trying this move, and it's kind of like we, we're going to try and try, and we're going to hurt each other, but we got to get it before we go back home, you know? And that, that, was, that was something. I miss those days. Yeah, that's serious. Were you guys, like, ever get to a point of, like, filming demo videos or anything like that, or is that not a it, thing yet? It was different times, man. I mean, yeah, there was like, there was a scene for sure, man. I mean, uh, there was. This is before even the first Tony Hawk video game. Uh, this is this is like Sega Genesis days, you know. There was Transworld skateboarding, skateboarder. There was the you know the Bones and Power Peralta. We heard about them. There wasn't a lot of skateboarding uh, in Montreal. Um, so I mean, uh, we and no one had videos and no one had phones, so we never really filmed. I never, I don't have a lot of those uh, video memories now. Did you ever like compete or anything, or was it just like hobbies? 
No, I never got to a... There wasn't a lot of competition in Montreal also. That was another thing. Uh, but I never competed. And at one point, I, I switched a little more to snowboarding because I, I would fucking be the guy. Lucky is kind of like... A, a, it's ironic. I was actually the unlucky guy. And I, I just bail a lot and hurt myself. So at one point, it kind of my mind was like, oh, well, snow is a little softer, you know? So I put... At one, I was a little better snowboarding at one point I had I, I did not compete but I I was driven like I was almost there and I it was so much competing like at one point in my life like say 16 to 18 uh, it was like or even 1920 if I can get a couple of sponsors kind of thing just a couple I can travel like be a traveling fucking hobo and just do some photo shoots that that, that was a possibility at one point you know but uh, I got a big fucking bail at one point uh, doing a front flip. And basically, my I did a front flip. I fell on my, I put my, my shoulder down because I was going to fall on my head. And uh, my skateboard, so my skateboard opened up my my forehead. I, I folded, and my, my, my knee folded in the other direction. And uh, I just got stitches, but I fucked up my knee a lot and my back, and uh, then I was blocked. Like a, that's the difference between a pro skateboarder or snowboarder and uh, someone that doesn't go pro. It's like when you have that big, big bail, is it going to block you mentally after, or you're going to be even harder, you know? So mm. I, I, I got a little blocked after that, which drove me back to music eventually also. Okay, so you're basically done high school, and... You have your injury at that point, and so how do you end up getting back into music? I uh, so at that point, I mean, skateboarding and snowboarding, and being in Montreal where there wasn't that much of a metal scene compared to these smaller towns in Quebec. Uh, eventually, like it became more and more hip hop, and uh, a little bit of punk also, but. Uh, one thing that marked me for me was like the transition of hip hop that became dark and for me like there, there was a clear bridge between metal and hip hop when we started here in like 90 91 when we started hearing like public enemy uh onyx like cypress hill uh and fucking wu-tang and wu-tang was like for me changed everything but those bands in particular they were so dark and they were so like violent and they for me, my ear, my mind, my, my soul felt it like metal. And also, the way they would rap and the, the technical and their individuality as MCs, for me, was like a, the dopest fucking guitar player in the world was this guy. But it's not notes, it's words, and it's written with his mouth, and also it's like, it's messages. And, the, and now, the, uh, it's not just uh, like metal where it's symbols and these gnarly sounds that are demonic or this or that there's like fucking like let's say public enemy there's like, there's messages there's like true activism there's like true there, some fun some words that can 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 you know like get a whole crowd rowdy or some and then eventually that yeah i mean that at one point it was just hip-hop I, I didn't want to listen to anything anymore so this is around i had been listening for years but i mean around by the age of 18, I mean, I didn't want to listen to anything else. At 92, I didn't want to listen to nothing else than hip-hop. There was so much stuff going on. It was like you had to know 
which one, what, what was coming out? How was the sound going to change? So that's a big, that's where I wanted to go with that right next. So this is where, like, it's super interesting to just hear from it. So you're in Montreal in the early 90s getting into hip-hop. I don't even think I've talked to that many people that are in that era from that time that are cognizant of what's going on. So what's it like to, how do you get access to music at that time? Like, how do you discover your new hip-hop? Well, it was really friends. I mean, friends of friends. We'd go to, we'd still kind of skateboard, so uh, just as a mean of transport in general, we'd just fuck around. But uh, we'd go to a lot of parties, like house parties. And then it was, uh, at that point, there was still, like, it, there was CDs, but the cassettes were still pretty much there. And a big thing, like, in house parties was, like, discover the rarest fucking thing. And you, if you'd come to a party and you'd have, like, the rarest thing and because this is like there's not really internet people would flip out man and you'd be like kind of that the star of the show and also you just like you make your that that passion you had for that new band and uh, you share it with people i remember let's like, say everyone liked cypress hill you know and then i remember going to a party and some guy came with a dubbed cassette let's like, just like uh a cassette that was taped on uh this band called the Mexicans, Mexicans with a Z at the end, which was another Latino LA band. They weren't as good as Cypress Hill, but they kind of sounded like them, you know, and uh, no one knew them. I remember like three parties later, I heard that same cassette that was dubbed from a cassette that, that was dubbed over another cassette that like the sound quality would go down to every party, you know, because no one had the original. No one knew how to get the original. And then there was other shit. Like there was a, I think it was on McGill College. There was a place called Fatchin Music, I think. Uh, that was like a New York guy or he would go to New York and he would bring back like mixtapes and stuff like that. So there was a couple of those shops also. And uh, so it was really word to mouth parties. It was a couple of obscure shops, and yeah, and that was just before the internet. Then the internet hit, and it was the whole other game. It kind of accelerated our knowledge and the sharing of the whole thing. And there was no downloads at that point, but at least we, we'd see, let's say, pictures of the dudes. I remember, like, let's say Wu-Tang comes out, nine guys, and they all have fucking masks, and there's a ski mask or whatever, a nylon. There's no uh, real big internet thing going on. We didn't know who was who. I mean, it was a mythology. It was like, I remember I thought Ghostface Killer was actually the voice of ODB and this guy and that guy. So it was just like the conversation between us. Oh, no, that's uh, this guy or that's that guy. And then, oh, but he's the dopest. It, but we had no fucking clue. It was just so mysterious, you know? It was exciting. I didn't even think about that before. I mean, like, I've looked at the cover, and I'm pretty sure it's because Ghostface had a warrant, so they did the mask so that they could all be there or some shit or whatever, whatever. <clears throat> yeah. Well, that was one of the music videos. Anyway, I don't know what it was, but, like, the fact is, if you're just looking at these guys, and you just even see their videos, or you see all their content, there's not... Unless you caught that one video where, like, four of them are identified, it is super fucking hard to actually piece together which dude is which dude. That's it. And just like, even, like... Just like listening, trying to map out the names of people without... I don't know if they had lyrics back then in the stuff. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. But without lyrics, you just get nine guys rapping across like a bunch of music. And then you got to piece together who's who and map out the voices without the help of lyric sites. Oh, yeah. That's a whole different world. Yeah, and back then also we were like, wait, trip, right? Let's say uh, 
And we'll get stuff always like a year later in Montreal. So let's say uh, I remember discovering Gravediggers just before Wu-Tang, so this 94. And then by the end of 94, I discovered Wu-Tang. But also, like, uh, I remember fucking uh, tripping on uh, Gravediggers. And there was, like, it was the beginning of the Internet, so not everyone had the Internet. And to find, like, a site that, let's say, had lyrics, that, that was any site at that point. It was very basic Internet. So uh, a, a big thing was, like, listen to the CD, pause the, the just go a couple bars, Write down the music by hand, man. Pause it, put it back down. Sometimes you're not sure about the word, you're just fucking it up. But you take like two hours to write down the lyrics as a fan. And just to, to fucking get that song by heart, you know? And then go to the next party, the song goes on, and you know that fucking song by heart, dude. You're flowing. And everyone's like, oh shit, that's fucking insane, you know? So it was just like everything, you kind of had to work for it, even as a fan, you know? It wasn't a around it yo that's like that's like a whole different level i mean just think about the things you say shut up jouer avec le doux for the follow um uh but like think about everything you just said first of all the party vibe i want to figure out how to recreate this party vibe where we all trying to flex on we know more underground shit than you like who can drop the coolest shit in the world like that sounds like a flex that could be done today stills because the opposite here's the beauty of today there's just so much music that now nobody's heard everything. Even you could yeah. just do this in Montreal. You could yeah. play who's the best in Montreal and everybody shows up with their best Montreal cut. And you could probably every fucking three months have a completely fresh list every single time and nobody would have heard of anything. That's actually a sick idea. I'm going to remember that one. For sure. But yeah. So like that vibe sounds amazing. Like popular music in clubs is a vibe, but on like rare cuts like, and you're not the first person to say it i was talking to deuce god and he was like yo that's my favorite shit i'm like wait there's just people who love this there's like this this culture of like people who dig around and find the most obscure shit and i mean i know it exists but just to think about it at a party is amazing but then you gotta like figure out who's who's write down the lyrics by hand memorize these motherfuckers some shit that might have taken me 30 40 minutes you're taking hours for because I, I mean by the time i'm in high school it's the 2000 2005 era so like yeah lyric sites exist we could just print it out and fucking run it um but like that's a lot of cool shit like that's like an era where i almost it almost feels like you're forced to care more and it almost explains a bit why maybe people care a lot more about lyrics right you're gonna have to listen to that motherfucker for two and a half hours straight just to get those lyrics down you're gonna have to really fucking like those lyrics like that's really, it. it can't that's be it. some vapid shit that's it that's it that's just that, that those days i was just a fan i wasn't writing my own stuff yet we're talking about 95 97 i started writing my own stuff in 98 so yeah so that just, just as a fan man i was like whoa and at the same time without knowing i was studying lyricism and i was studying flows man and uh, just as a super fan you know and everyone it, knowledge was so important in those days well at least for me and a lot of people i know i mean you'd get the you'd buy it wasn't like today a download and stuff you you'd buy the cd and, and right away you check like uh, who's the producer of every track and where did they record and this and that you know so it, it was there there was really a we we cared about knowledge we really want when we talked about hip-hop we wanted to know 
really what was going we wanted to share that knowledge with people you know oh no this oh yeah gangstar oh yeah gangstar he that's dj premier oh yeah he's a producer he's a dj also and uh he produced this new track you know by uh let's say fucking jeru the damager oh who's there with jeru the damager well, fucking you should check that album out so there was always a link between an artist and another because of the producers of course yeah that's super cool I wonder why people stop going that direction when producers. Producers are fascinating. Like, they're the, like, glue of a lot of shit, in my opinion. So, like, I'm super... Like, even behind the scenes here, producers work with everybody, whereas rappers don't work with everybody. And so just producers inherently become more interesting on that front. Plus, they can usually engineer, which makes them way more fun to know than, you know... I'm not, yeah. It's not my favorite sure. thing in the world. Um, so what, what makes you get to that point, then, from geeking out on stats which i really like uh to actually going wait i can do this well that's it at that point i mean i wasn't i'm getting some beginning of my 20s so we're so yeah like, like i said 98 right so uh i'm not playing guitar anymore really uh kind of skating anymore but uh, i'm i i'm kind of skating but not putting like any effort to do tricks anymore kind of snowboarding so i kind of I, I need another outlet kind of thing and i'm not a poser i'm not just going to be a, a fan i i've i've always tried to push myself whatever i was my main interest was so then i just start dabbling a little bit i have dabbled a little bit with really easy punk songs playing guitar because i wasn't the best fucking guitar player so i do power chords and write some stupid shit but then uh what really happened is there was a a family thing that I can't get in too much in detail with, but I, I was kind of uh, not talking to someone in my family and uh, living a lot of uh, emotional stuff. And uh, I had never written, let's say, a diary or stuff like that. And uh, so I'm just bubbling up. And as a young child and all that, I would get aggressive. So not hurting people, I would hurt myself. Let's say I'd go in and get in a fight with someone. Uh, it was mostly screaming, and I would, like, hit walls until I hurt my hand, you know, I would never hurt other people. And uh, so I had a lot of kind of stuff going on emotionally uh, as a young, uh, teenager and a young adult. And uh, after that year that I wasn't talking about to that family member, uh, Christmas time came out, this uh, came to, and this was, uh, so Christmas uh, 98. And uh, I was confronted to the person, I didn't want to see that person. So while my whole family is uh, celebrating Christmas, I go to the basement of my grandma's and I write a song in French because uh, I was with this Francophone family and uh, I had to express it that way. And but it was the title was in English. It was uh, "My Life" and it was like uh, you know, like something stupid, like something like "Moi Young, uh, Low Eye, Fuck Everyone." I don't know. You know, it was that whole Anglo-Franco shit was going on in those years. It's '98. Uh, Yo, hold on. What does that mean? Cause it was 98... like I'm young, low, high, fuck everyone. Uh, it was like I, I was very confused, you know. Uh, I was, uh, but I wrote. But this title is is whack. But the I wrote I, I wrote it naturally. It, it was like a trance. Okay, I was in the basement. I was sober. I was very much sad and in my emotions, and I I just started writing all this shit that was bubbling up. And time passed, and I was just in this zone. And of course, being such a fan of hip hop, it came out in prose and in poetry in that style. And I wrote like 
three sixteen bars or something, and a hook, a whole song. And uh, when I finished, I man, I think I shed a tear. A tear, man. I was like, wow, you know. And then I could go and see my family and finish that. But I didn't explode that night, and I didn't hit my uh, break a wall, and I didn't hurt, hurt myself. I I took that energy and I, I put it into into poetry, really. And hip hop for me was the ultimate form of poetry, and uh, that was like revelation. And then that whole year of '98, every time I had whatever feeling that was deep, because I'm a very emotional person, I would write write down poetry, hip hop. And by '99, I had a couple of songs, and then I hooked. I had a, a friend that was a DJ that did a lot of scratch, so I did a first session in '99, uh, just before Christmas, uh, on a Nas beat, affirmative, affirmative action, and uh, did one of my first songs. That was like the first time I recorded on a four-track tape deck, you know. And my neighbors were jazz musicians. This is '99. They were there was a drummer and uh, the keyboard player and they they knew a really good bass player. They were jazz musicians uh, at the Université uh, de Montréal, a little younger than me, and uh, they were like uh, always jamming in their apartment. I didn't know nothing about jazz, so I was always like, "Hey, I'm a rapper, you know, let's jam." And they were like, "Uh huh, yeah, sure, you know." So one, so, so one day, so like I'm, they're like jazz snobs, and I'm just trying to be cool. And then uh, one day, I'm trying to impress this girl I go out with for a while. Frequent, I'm kind of seeing, and I have this little fucking tape with one of my songs on the beat from Nas. And I don't have a tape deck, so I knocked in my my neighbor's house, and they're jamming their jazz at that point. And I'm like, and they're like sweating, you know. And yeah, what do you want? Oh. I don't have a tape deck. Can I use your sound? Yeah, no problem. And they go back into their jam space, and I put it super loud to impress this girl, right? It's not that good. It's the first thing I did, right? And uh, But it's honest. I've always been honest. And she's kind of being sweet with it. She's like, yeah, it's good. Don't give up, you know? <laughs> and then the fucking drummer comes out, and he's like, dude, is that you? I'm like, yeah, I told you I'm a rapper. Like, we should jam. Like, fuck yeah, we should jam. That became so... Within a month, dude. So that became my first band, Sculpture du Son, which started in December 99 and finished in 2004. That was four years. That was my development years under the local scene of Montreal. We did all the contests and the, a lot of stuff happened right. with that band. We got to talk about this era a bit, too, because a huge thing for me is uh, where really what started all of this for me was I talked to Preach and Cobia. And he described Montreal hip hop from like ninety six to ninety nine, just the English scene and just kind of the Cotonage NDG area almost. And it took him two hours just to cover <laughs> three years. Now preach is special like that. He has a talent yeah. for it. But yeah. it made me realize how little I knew. Like I come into this scene in twenty twelve and at this point the scene is evolving into what it it, it becomes, right? But this whole new era, these new people and none of these new people know anything about this old shit. I can promise you, like, people are unaware across the board of how much Montreal history has, like, taken place. Like, I learned that D-Shade and them fucking open for Backstreet Boys. I learned, like, so much interesting shit, like, took place in this time frame. Yeah. But nobody really was there. <laughs> but you were there. So that's yeah. like, wow. 
So you're like one of the earliest Munchu. Well, not early. I don't. I wouldn't go with earliest, but from this era of the like, let's say late '90s, early 2000s, when the scene really does start to take shape, you're like one of these pioneer artists that are coming through. Yeah, well, I'm I'm kind of following, like you say, like uh, like Shade of Culture. Shade of Culture was was the band in the, the Anglophone community. You know, there was some alternative stuff going on that had more mass appeal, like. Brand Van Free Thousand also, but in the real hip hop scene, shit of culture. Every time there was like a a a good American band, whatever it was, it was shit of culture opening up for them. You know, I remember one of the best shows I ever saw was uh, KRS One at the Spectrum in Montreal. The Rascals from Vancouver were opening up and shit of cultures, and that was a sick show. It finished with a big cipher, a, a big freestyle of all those bands. You know. So I was a fan also of the, the scene. And then when I started with these jazz kids, because one thing about me, coming from guitar and all that, I wanted to play live music. From the get-go, I did not want to play with a DJ. That was one thing about me. I wanted to be in a band. So whatever, we were gonna, I'm a rapper, we're going to do hip-hop, but I have to find good musicians, so why not jazz, you know? And I, I want to be in a band. That was my whole thing. So... Uh, so and and what happened also there was yes this this English uh, scene but most of my surrounding my friends were francophone and then when I started looking at like the contests and the the government grants and all that stuff 2000 early 2000 this is before like uh, the explosion also of uh, fucking like uh, handheld devices uh, the smartphones uh, the uh, the MP3 scene and all that it was still very much like demos CDs these contests and all that. But most of the, the stuff you could participate in was for the francophone scene. There was much more possibilities for francophones. So for me, I made a, a conscious choice, even though I was way more into English uh, stuff and I, I think I could write better in English, I, I decided to do like francophone hip-hop because I wanted to do all these contests and all that. So I did for 2000 to 2004, almost it was only frank francophone then that band became like bilingual and by the end of the band the last year it was like only anglophone because we had a lot of failed day we, we won contests but we had some failed deals and you know we there's a lot of stuff that didn't happen for us so at the end we were doing a lot of improv and I, I had a lot of pro, like sound processors with my voice we're doing some like sometimes our shows would be free sets of 45 minutes all this improv and within that I'm maybe rapping 25 minutes and at that point I'm just doing anglophone you know so there was a whole kind of those four years there was a whole journey of exploration and uh, and I, I kind of I, I made choices to to inter integrate myself to a scene and then I was kind of like no I'm, I want to do what I want to do and then the musicians they 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 opened my 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 mind to jazz I discovered jazz and we did a lot of improv, man. So that was fun. I wasn't like the best freestyler. For me, improv was the jazz improv. So it was kind of to improvise on music that is spontaneous, you know. So I would kind of do medleys of my stuff and do little parts that were improvised vocally. And then I'd have machines, man. I'd just do some crazy shit with my voc my vocals, you know. Like the loop fun. machine kind of stuff? Yeah, and just like sound processors and loop machines, yeah. I had right, a sequencer so, also, just I would do noise. So what's it like performing in a smoking aloud Montreal and all that vibe? Like, what's it like in that scene? Because, like, 
Everything changed in 05 when they banned smoking. Like, the entire fucking party yeah. well, the drastically first, shifted. So my first demo was, so the song was like March 2000, four songs, a demo. Uh, we went to a real studio and all that. And our, our launch was at L'Art du Temps. This is one of the last, well, there's still a little bit, but this was a really legendary, small, small jazz venue in old Montreal. Uh, there's a movie with uh, De Niro called The, the Score, I think. Uh, he, he, there's parts that are filmed in that bar, right? This bar was very small and very smoky, and it was just a jazz bar. But because we were, I was with all these jazz musicians, we played there, and it closed like a year after. So our launch was with all these jazz legends that I did not know at all, a lot of old men. And they were impressed by my bass player, especially. Uh, Francois Surgeon, but uh, and I was just this naive kid, and I was doing like hardcore, kind of uh, borderline activism, kind of violent francophone hip hop, you know, mixed with jazz fusion. It was just weird shit, and yeah, a lot of smoke, man, and a lot of like small venues with like small roofs on, and you're touching the fucking roof, and and I'm asthmatic, and sometimes it gets so smoky, dude, like I'd almost fucking be choking on scene, man, but. It was fun because it was organic, man, and people were very open-minded, man. Like, it was a lot of stuff going on. As far as, like, live hip-hop, I know some people did it before me. There was Dice B that did it before me a couple of years, and then there was Loco Locas that Dice B, but these guys never recorded. It was like they did it live, or they had an album with beats, and then when they came live, they did it with live musicians. Me, I recorded with a band. I was in a band. So my contribution, as far as those years, was one of the first people to do it with live, organic jazz musicians that was actually doing everything live. There was never beats, never sequences in what we did. So that's what I did. That, that, and, and it was just how it happened. It's the people that, that I, I met and how it evolved. It was fucking awesome. I had a time in my life, man. Serious? We just out of curiosity, we getting paid to perform? I mean, we did a lot of bars in those days. Uh, we'd get paid, like not a lot. Get a. I mean, we were four musicians. If we'd get two hundred bucks by the end of the night, that'd be kind of really good, you know. Often it was just like free drinks, uh, but a lot of free drinks. Often you go back to the same places, so you can kind of almost have open bar, and a lot of friends, you know, and then. Uh, Maybe we'll get whatever, 150, 175. We do like normally two sets, like two 50 minute sets or something. We were, so I was like a little uh, alternative rap artist because that's it. There wasn't a lot of people doing this live organic jazz stuff. For me, like the Roots was a huge, huge, huge influence, you know? Mm. So, uh, so I was kind of weird like that. I mean, I still had a lot of friends that were. I was starting to, to make more and more friends that were jazz musicians, and uh, then I had some a lot of friends that were like street punks and kind of metal guys, and I had a little bit of rapper friends and shit, but almost nothing. So I was kind of a black sheep in the scene, I'd say, in those years especially. Yeah. That's fair. Um, so you're going through all of that with the band, and then the band kind of evolves into you migrating into English. Why did you migrate into English? Well, that's it. At one point, like, uh, you know, we had fa failed deals, man, uh, record deals, uh, 
people bullshitting, people going bank bankrupt. We signed with MP3. There was the MP3 wars, so uh, iTunes wasn't a thing yet. I remember signing with a Montreal uh, MP3 company and a Toronto MP3 company. Both went bankrupt, and uh, so uh, we had an MP3 company. It was like you know, there was like iTunes that won like 2004, I guess, or five or something. Became like like the reference of like MP3 of selling music, you know, online. But before that, it was all these independents like. This company from Toronto, this company from fucking New York. This so t- there was kind of a, a so war of like, go who's going to gonna be who's going to be relative, who's going to bring traffic and actually sell digital music, you know. And uh, that war finished with iTunes, you know. So uh, we lost a lot of energy and time, kind of kind of transitioning into the digital era, era because we were lost. We didn't know what we were doing at that point. It was there was a lot of stuff going on. But so from those exceptions, we were as artists that had a lot to express and that had tried somewhat to for, to fit in formats and at least to be distributed and stuff. Uh, we just kind of said, fuck it, we're going to do what we really like. So it could be like a show, like I said, three sets of 45 minutes, which is almost all improv. At one point, we were not playing. We had free demos. We had like 15, 16 songs or something uh and other stuff but uh uh at one point we did not play any of our songs anymore we it was like a big fuck you to the the whole scene and the experience so our friends would come and they were like play this song it's awesome and we're like no we don't play our music anymore and then it would just start the show would start like let's say a a fretless uh five string uh, bass solo of 20 minutes and then we would get on stage and then we would do this thing and that thing I didn't make noise, and maybe in the third set I would rap. So it was really a big fuck you. That was what it was. And so y'all were uh, making avant-garde shit to protest the industry, but still getting booked. Yeah, because it was all these bars, so they didn't really care as long as we brought a little bit of people and people drank. So that's incredible. <laughs> that's an incredible run. Like I don't even know if people could get away with that today. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was different. It was different days, man. Were you, sure. were you going by Lucky Lex back then? Yeah. How so did Lucky you Lex? choose Lucky Lex? It was, that, again, that uh, kind of uh, irony. So uh, as a young, teen- a young adult, young teenager, I was the unlucky guy. So a lot of uh, the skateboarding stuff, bailing a lot, but also just weird shit. So I'm a peaceful guy. I'm walking on the street, something, talking with a friend kind of like cross this person he punches me in the face i didn't even look at the guy you know so all these a lot of weird fucking shit would happen to me and so much that it became a gag at one point i get i go to parties and uh people come up to me and hey alex hey alex uh, what happened to you because they knew some shit happened to me you know and it was like the running gag the unlucky guy so that was that. And after like 99, so after a year of writing stuff and I'm practicing on all these instrumentals I can find uh, on like CD, uh, I'm kind of figuring out like I need a name, kind of need an artist name. And I, that week I had lost like my job, my girlfriend, a lot of shit. It was, I was kind of like, it was a bad week. And uh, the uh, answering machines were like a, a, a home phone. 
you could do like uh, the pre-recorded message where it'd be like, hey, you have uh, reached the vo voice box of, yes. and spontaneously, <laughs> I blur out in this wag voice, kind of like, lucky Lex, just that. And then I, re I fucking hang up. Then fucking two days, it's like new job, new girlfriend, new this, new that. So I, I stick with it. It was like, like a stupid joke kind of thing. It was like, I'm not lucky. And then Lex was from Alex. So I stick with it. <laughs> I think that is truthfully one of the best ways somebody has told me they picked their name. So I did it as a gag on a voicemail and it literally changed my luck and solved my problems. I'm going to run it. All right. So let's say we go back to 2004 then. Uh, what happens after your band? So 2004... So that's it. After the fuck you period, it kind of falls apart because we're all in our fuck you as a collective, but also as individual artists, we're all going different directions. So uh, so this guy wants to do a rock, uh, the drummer, let's say. The other guy wants to go back to jazz, the other guys. And uh, so I get a little bit left behind. Uh, but we, we just naturally break up. There's no discussion about it. And then... Uh, I was so impressed and I was so like, uh, I had learned so much from these talented musicians that at that point I'm trying to quit, I'm questioning myself like, am I even a musician? Like, musician, you know, not a rapper or a poet, but a musician. So I had the sequencer machine that I had been fucking around. So uh, I, I said, fuck, I'm going to try to do my own beats and do my own demo just to see if I'm a musician, if I can pull it off. So I did a six song demo that I went to my keyboard, my keyboardist had, from that band, had a home studio, and he was actually a professor in sound recording, really good, and uh, I did, so I did the whole fucking thing on a 16-track sequencer, a Yamaha RM1X, and uh, from a machine from like 2000 or something, and uh, I did all these loops, and uh, very simple, so I would take like eight tracks for my drums, and then eight tracks for melody, and then the way I would do it is kind of like, uh, let's say there's an intro, it goes to uh, to the verse, to, to uh, the chorus. I would just mute certain elements to transition and progress. So that's the way I figured it out. And then I had this whole little dot. Uh, I would just do little dots on a paper, and I had this language to make myself know how I composed it because I didn't know how to write music. So it was like this big process of fucking trying to compose my own music but i pulled it off and i went to his studio and he helped me he put a little bit of a uh keyboard on some tracks and a little bit of guitar on some tracks and then one track i uh i, I put samples voice samples and i took a v vhs cassette and i went to my girlfriend's house that had cable television because i didn't have it and i recorded all these little bits of commercial and all commercials and all stupid things bits of two seconds and stuff and i that's the way I, I figured out how to sample so we had to make take this whole these make puzzle pieces of all these little bits on vhs and make tell stories with our, our samples so anyway after like a three month period of doing that I have so a you're saying song. like the way that motherfuckers go to youtube right now and grab a one two thing youtube to mp3 load it into the da you because I've never heard this one before, so I get excited when I hear people telling me new creative shit like that. Um, you would load up the TV, watch TV, and wait for the good shit, hit record, and hope it was the good shit. Well, yeah, I, I would like do a, 
a whole night of like bullshit cable television. There's a lot of infomercials, so they had a lot of like crazy voices and stupid fucking verbal bits. And I, uh, my rule was don't ever record more than three seconds or it's going to get too complicated. So yeah, and then I had like 45 minutes of three second samples. <laughs> that was just for one song. <laughs> so anyway, my, my, uh, my, my friend that recorded that was like the producer. Uh, yeah, he, he worked a lot on it. <laughs> he helped me. Uh, how, did I was get, still... how do you get the audio off of the VHS? He figured it out. He, he, he put the VHS through uh, some kind of sound card in his computer, and he figured it out. Then he took it all. Then we isolated the sounds we wanted, and then those became puzzle pieces, and then we put the puzzle together to tell stories. Because that, that song was my last French song that I did at that point. Everything else was English. And I had called it Mass Perturbation, which is a wordplay with masturbation. So mass per, uh, uh, trauma, tra traumatism ma from the mass. Uh, mass Perturbation. It's a wordplay with masturbation. And it was a, a, a song about uh, the negative effect of television. So it worked out very well conceptually, but it was a mess, and I was so naive. But uh, yeah, after, so we did that song. We did six That's songs. That's like going super MF Doomy. <clears throat> this is yeah, this is 2004. This yeah, and uh, yeah, I did that demo. So I did that demo with six songs, and then the, the cover was one of my friends that did some some collage, like uh, hand drawn stuff, very naive. And then I pressed 50 copies, just like. Uh, just like burnt some DVDs, I did some stickers, and I, I photocopied the, the the cover, and I gave it to like whatever, say QT, and a couple of people on the scene. But I mostly gave it to my friends. It wasn't for me about oh I'm gonna put put this out. It was really about am I a musician? Can I carry on? Do it? Can do I have the credibility? Kind of. It was to convince myself. So that was the first thing I did after my first band. Yeah. So you self-produced the project. With some help, just to and prove to people you could, just myself. to validate. Yeah. Well, prove to yourself you could, and then you just made a limited run and gave it to some people, and that was it. That's it. That came out in two thousand five, I guess. Yeah. Does it still exist? I could find a copy. I think there's like Reverb Nation has three of the songs on it. <laughs> hey, Reverb Nation. <laughs> That's a treasure trove, honestly. I bet everybody's <laughs> old shit's really buried there. You know what? I should start looking up people's fucking Reverb Nations for this shit. Let's see what Word the fuck up. I find. Word <laughs> up. That's a great one. Um, wow, that's, that's incredible. Do you like perform it or anything, or do you just put it out and move on? I did a couple performances which were really fucking hard to pull off because, like I said, I kind of like would mute elements, so I had 16 tracks, and then let's say the the intro comes off, so it comes on, so hi hat, so it's like activate track one hi hat, and then bass drum track three, let's say, and the, so I had to I had these these little codes on a piece of paper next to the machine, and it was dark, and then I kind of had like activate activate activate, so that's the intro, and then uh, beat hits. I have to press five buttons at the same time, and then I have to kind of start singing the chorus. And then, let's say after chorus, okay, to uh, the verse. So I have to mute 
seven tracks with my fingers and then I go into the, it was very hard because it was so fucking like a weird way to make music but I did like uh, maybe four shows very artsy like a art exhibit some community thing and two bars probably nothing never with hip hop artists it was always with another kind of crowd it, it just kind of people asked me to do it and I guess I guess I did it are you saying that you literally took up like the fucking 16 track machine hit play on that from the start just preloaded with your shit ready to go and then would live mix the song while rapping yeah that's it I had to mute and, and progressively yeah live it was super hard that's serious <laughs> like when you really 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 think about it I feel so I mean, spoiled in this era <laughs> I could have t told the guy that recorded me to give me instrumental versions and just press play on a cd and just do it but no i was like i couldn't move a lot because i had to stand still next to my machine and i had to do all this with this little coded language of paper next to me and then remember the lyrics and, and be on time so i don't know why i made it so complicated but yeah it was pretty artsy <laughs> yeah i don't know if i would recommend that strategy but it's so impressive no, still. no way <laughs> don't recommend it <laughs> So what comes after this uh, art project experiment? <clears throat> yeah, so after that, uh, I was working this bar. I was kind of still in the jazz scene a lot. They had jazz shows. And uh, I started to be friends with some really big names, older people. Uh, and my guitar player, well, he wasn't my guitar player. He was a friend that just like, uh, he was a heavy metal, metal guitar player, but... Uh, he worked with me in the kitchens in this place where there was some live uh, jazz. And he was a fan of what I did, and I, I liked him a lot. And he was, we went to see James Brown, yeah. So this is like, we went to see J James Brown live in Metropolis. This is probably 2006. And uh, great experience. We come out of the James Brown show, and my buddy looks at me, the guitar player, and says, uh, Lucky, we have to start a funk band. I'm like, okay, why not? And then he talked to all these big names. So it was uh, Alex Bellegarde, which is a amazing upright bass player. There was Namori Cizé, that is a, uh, he was a, a, he's a Congolese drummer that played with Jean Leloup in his big band project. Uh, and then just other people, uh, we had uh, Giovanni Ortega, which is a Cuban saxophone player. And uh, we started practicing First, we started practicing two times a week, me and the guitar player, and we composed all the songs, so about 12, 14 songs. It was, it, he composed all the music, and we arranged together, and I would write to the music. And it was very, very much uh, symbiotic, both of us. And then after that three-month period or four-month period, we started, because they were very busy people and a little older, and they had some had families, uh, to integrate uh, on their time for no money. Uh, these jazz musicians and then it became just like, like another level and that became uh, Lucky Lex and the Adventure and we went to uh, Studio Victor. Studio Victor uh, was the first studio in Montreal after the Second World War the major first studio in Montreal to have been built by a major record company Victor RCA after the uh, Second World War and it was one of, now it's, it's not there anymore, but Studio Victor was one of the most amazing studios in Montreal. 
and it had this half-cylinder roof, this uh, wooden half-cylinder technology from the end of the 40s, and the, the uh, very high roofs, and the, the sound quality of this studio was fucking amazing. And we had like the like horn sections and some sometimes just one horn, full band, big drums, a very a lot of pieces and the upright bass, these crazy funk arrangements. And it was it was all in English. It was straight up funk with like very energetic uh, hip hop, and it was a little bit of soul influences. And we had a uh, Coco Thompson that uh, did some uh, female vocals on it. She was a amazing soul singer. Uh, it was a fucking great. That, that music was pretty fucking awesome. And I played a lot with that band, so it came out, and it was some struggle, you know, uh, financing the project and all that, And uh, but finally came out in uh, 2007. So we, we did that from probably about 2007 to 2010 or something. And we play a lot of bars. We play a lot of shows. Like, we do, like, at least, well, in the summertime and all that, it was like two shows a week. We came, we became a house band for some places, and the the players I was playing with were so like kind of busy and all that, and living from their music. We all had jobs, so that I I couldn't keep up with all the because sometimes we were like eight on stage or nine, so I was switching players a lot. There was in those three years, I maybe had twenty five players on that in that band, you know made it happen i was it was fucking awesome it was great so you coordinated an ongoing open band of jazz music or funk sorry funk musicians yeah. that were like people who were names and then you rapped and you guys first put together this project and then you kept it alive like you're basically one of them old-timey big band dudes but in montreal in like 2007 or 8 yeah 2007 to 2010 and I went to get a sponsorship from uh, Lucky Seven T-shirts, so we all had that gear on stage, and we a little bit so like uh, a little influenced by uh, George Clinton and stuff. So we drive, we dress very colorful and very loud and stuff. It, it was very uh, much uh, an homage to uh, James Brown and George Clinton, and uh, our love for like jazz, soul, and funk, especially, and that energy, that funk energy. So, uh, yeah, that was great. That was really fun. Uh, we played a lot live. We had a lot of fun. That was great. Yeah, so I have... Sorry, one no. album. Yeah. Is that out there still for the world? I still have some uh, boxes of CDs I didn't sell. I think I have a hundred left. Uh, that's on the Reverb Nation. <laughs> It's amazing though, yo. But we're learning that Reverb Nation is actually a treasure trove because you gotta just imagine, yo. I've never thought to look there, but how many people from like an older era just put up Reverb Nation, and we all just forgot. It's not like yeah, any of us went yeah. back and deleted shit. We just stopped using it. Yeah, and MySpace too. <laughs> that one's unfortunately just gone. Like, oh, can you still use MySpace? No, I think a lot of the MySpace shit is gone. I, I actually get emails once in a while. Like every two months, you have a new follower. That's incredible. <laughs> okay, maybe MySpace is worth rating too. We'll check it out. We'll we'll dig in deeper into like yeah. the past like that. Yeah. But um, did you get to go like like anywhere like on tour outside of Montreal, or was it more like you just established yourself within the city? I well, like, with that kind of project, just holding it together with eight nine people, with, they're all separate lives and busyness I, I never i was i'm still to this day i mean i'm very much a local artist well now 
the internet, so other stuff is happening now, Spotify. But I never really toured uh, outside of Quebec. Really, I never toured outside of Quebec. I did some shows, like, in Quebec City and some small towns around Montreal and shit. But, I'm a, yeah, I'm a local artist, man. Yeah, it's big. It's big up. So, what do you do after the Lucky Lex project? And why? Why does or the Lucky Lex and the Ventures, right? And the and the adventure, yeah. And the adventure. So, what uh, what makes it stop in two thousand ten? Well, just juggling all that stuff, you know. And uh, by that time, uh, uh, also we had played so much bars that we kind of got got to a a max of what we could do like no one was coming anymore because we played too much kind of thing so uh, we still could book but it was we didn't have a, as much as a crowd and yeah can't kind of keeping that juggling the players it, it's gotten a little bit harder so uh it wasn't like final it kind of just faded out i guess yeah faded out slowly yeah that's that's an interesting point still about live right because Whatever about the internet marketing world is what it is. The live scene's opening up again, which means now's a good time to be wise about approach. And if you're saying there's a danger in oversaturating your live performance and its ability to pull people, that's like probably still true. Yeah. Well, for me, you know, even to this day, well, I'm not so concerned by live anymore because I'm older and also like COVID and shit. But, uh, uh, but even those days, like bookers was hard to find for me. And at that point, I had transitioned for a a, a while into anglophone, you know, and uh, I had trouble finding people to help me promote and uh, really hit that anglophone market and to book outside of Montreal. And that that would have at that point that band that I mean we should have went to Ontario, New York, whatever. At least you know we could have done a Canadian tour. It was super. It was accessible, you know. It was funk. I didn't. There was no blasphemy or swearing in that project. It was like kind of like my pop funk in the sense that it was very clean, you know. Uh, kids could listen to this music, so it had a lot of mar like it was marketable. But I, I I never found those people to help me like promote my music properly. So I guess that's why those kind of projects kind of did not go to their full potential. But I was never bitter of that. I mean, for me, it's a journey and just like enjoying all these moments, creative moments. And, and the fact that since the beginning, all I'm telling you is bands. And, and never that DJ just getting a beat or that, that MC just getting a beat or uh, being with one DJ. It's meeting all these people. By this time, uh, after this band, I've played with 35 different people in Montreal, you know? So it's meeting all these people and growing as a musician and an artist. So that's that's what's kept kept me like interested in, in doing music, you know. Uh, so after that, uh, that faded away uh, around 2010, 11, and uh, 2010 more. Uh, it was like a six month six month period. Uh, my 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 pops passed away, and that kind of and I remember he he came to see one of my last shows of that funk band, you know. And uh, he passed away suddenly of a heart attack. Uh, I wasn't that close to my pops, but it kind of fucked me up a little bit. And it was the first time I kind of 
stopped writing and doing music for more than a couple of months, let's say. Because between projects, it's like maybe a month or two. Uh, so now I stopped like eight months or something. And uh, what happened from then is that that same guitar player comes to see me and he says, hey, you know that bass player from my first band? So Dragon, we called him Dragon, the guitar player that was my funk guitar player, came to see me. And then he told me, hey, you know your bass player, Francois Turgeon, the ga jazz guy from Scripture the first band? He's doing some really cool shit, and I like his energy. And he's into this Buddhism and, and this like meditation and all that and his clean living. And I think we should go see him, and we should do some like Buddhist fucking world music. And I'm kind of in a detox period of my life and into Buddhism at that point and trying to find some spiritual closure with the death of my father so i'm like oh well i just wrote this song uh what's it called smoke it was about like detoxing a weed or something uh a very personal song very poetic and we kind of composed it just me and him like we used to do and we went to see Francois, the bass player and he was fucking like in this minimal living meditating a lot clean of everything eating fucking fruit and drinking tea and we we met we he introduced us to other bands other players and uh that big drop of a dime so drop of a dime was acoustic world hip-hop really so that was trippy it was everything was acoustic so acoustic guitar acoustic uh bass uh a cajon uh brazilian percussion percussion Different small percussion, uh, small like Indonesian and Indian uh, little bells and stuff. And then we would play in a, a circle with tea and shit, and we would do this spiritual music. And then uh, we had uh, two amazing female vocalists in that band. It, fi it finished that we did, did a couple of shows. We played the Burlesque Festival at the Club Soda, which was fucking awesome. And uh, we did uh, a couple of other shows, and we did a four-song demo. That was fun. It was kind of a transitional thing. That was. How do you do so many? I guess I know how you do so many different things. Because when you were little, you went around the world and you traveled and you saw a lot of different things. So you're exposed to just new. <clears throat> yeah. But that's like, like if you think about your career trajectory sonically compared to most people's. You're like definitely not taking a standard path here. In fact, you're like really one of those guys that really allows people to explore creatively because you did. And now it's become more normalized because folk were doing it. And as you said, it was complicated because it was hard to meet people throughout this process, probably because you're out there doing completely different shit that I could imagine other people weren't doing. Yeah. I've always been very open-minded, you know. Uh, I have one person, uh, he was a keyboard player in that uh, funk project. He was this Hungarian, a new uh, immigrant in Canada, a very talented keyboard player. And uh, I remember going to, like, uh, a bar with him, and I was alone and uh, with him. And by the end of the night, we were a little drunk. And he looks at me, and he has no experience in hip-hop or funk a little bit of course in, uh, in classical and jazz uh he looks at me and he kind of switches on me man and he 
I'm chill, man. He doesn't even have friends and shit, and I'm with him in this bar alone, uh, spending my time and energy with him. And he switches on me, and he looks at me, and he says, you know, Lucky, I like you and shit, but for me, that's not it. And I said, and he's weird, you know? And I'm like, the fuck is this guy talking about? He's like, you know, it's not it. And he's kind of like weird in his English because it's not his first language. And I'm like, uh, what do you mean it's not it? I said, you know, your music, it's cool and stuff. I like, kind of like it, but for me, it's not it. I said, okay, what the fuck are you trying to tell me? And then he says, you know what your strength is in life? I said, what? And by this time, I'm not liking what he's saying. And I, I said, you, you have the power and energy to put people together from all walks of life that would have not even blinked at each other on the street, that they would never even talk to each other. And you have that power to put these people together and make them create stuff that they have no idea what it's going to become. And that's very special. And for me, I took it as a fucking insult because I felt like, you tell me you don't fucking like my music? Like, why the fuck are you in my band, dude? Like, why are you talking to me like this? I'm like hurt, you know? Go back home and shit, forget about it. But like a year or so after that, I thought about that. And I took it as a compliment, you know? Whatever, everyone has their... Their, 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 their likes in life and all that and maybe he didn't really like hip-hop maybe he didn't like my voice but I took it as a qual uh, as really he gave me um, he gave me some props you know and, and it's true what he said I think I think I do have that power of attraction of putting people from all walks of life in very different backgrounds and different souls to create this new thing and I think that's what helped me as a, an artist evolve is to be open-minded and to always have this interest in authentic human beings that have their own thing going on so and learning from them and just having this melting pot of art, you know? So that's, yeah, that's what's kind of naturally been my, 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 my driving force, I guess. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like, I like the way your story plays out because it's just, again, it's so different. It's like... It's as obscure as the music it sounds like you make. Just quick side note, shout out Davy Man four one eight for the follow. Appreciate that. Word up. See, Davy I Man see. produced two songs on step. Yo, big up. That's fucking great. That album is ridiculous. So since I liked all of the songs, I definitely like Davy Man's production. <laughs> um and I don't say that hyperbolically. I really fuck with art that is just sonically in line with what music's supposed to be in my opinion which is a big topic but like also does something kind of cool with it like just the way you deliver imagine just everything about that song is pretty distinct you got like a vocal range you're not expecting especially coming off the last project like you look at the way it's all just put together the, um, the, the way you just create this whole thing but it also just doubles down on the part where you don't give a fuck what I think what's more important is what you imagine yeah. i'm like yeah that sounds like some real artist shit like fuck you listen to my trends they know better shit and i liked it a lot i liked it i really did but then it just progresses into just like every song is this unique experience that sounds unlike the other songs either in topic or sound and that is truly special in music not not i don't find many people can really do that. Like, I don't think I can do that kind of thing. That's like one of those things where I'm like, ah, nah, I'm pretty redundant. I know that. I'm fine with that. Not always, but like, 
the way you come at it so different it's like fuck me man like that's tapping into shit like i don't even know where you were coming up with it but it's not just like the rapping part it's the songwriting how do you make a song about junk food just to satirize drugs you know like that's so nifty to me like like that's like, it sticks uh, i want to take a, a little moment right now before i go on to something else uh, you talked about Imagine. Uh, uh, that producer is called Malcolm Ivrain. He produced uh, Imagine and he produced a uh, single on the step and is a great, talented person. And he's First Nations. I want to take a little moment to give my condolences and uh, peace and love and respect to First Nations. And my man Malcolm that did two songs on that album, Step. And Willie Scandals also that's a good supporter and a friend that's been helping me a lot. Oh, Willie Scandals is music, the homie. You know? So, yeah, I just wanted to take that little moment to you know, acknowledge that, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, music, uh, for me, yeah, it's like, at that point, like I said, so 2011, we're doing this fucking hippie shit, and it's super fun and trippy, and it's kind of very cleansing and cool. And then, uh, again, uh, we're all these different, very different minds and going in different directions. Basically, the album just takes forever, man. And I have a lot of stuff to express, and I have really at that point in my, my this is 2012, I've been 12 years doing my original music with four four free bands, yeah. I had kind of dabbled in solo stuff. Uh, I, I kind of know what I want to express and what I want to do at that point, so I go to a studio in 2012 to the producer, uh, some guy I know through another friend uh, for years, and I did not know him. I knew the friends of ours. And uh, his name is Alex Blaine. And he had this uh, his first studio. It came out of, of uh, school. He was a bass player, a sick bass player. He, he All the Lucky Luck stuff, it's his bass. And aside from uh, Step, my last album, that has multiple producers, all my solo stuff is all produced and recorded and mixed uh, by Alex Blaine. So I go to this guy's studio, and he's this uh, amazing kind of alien really creative uh, energetic crazy uh, producer where and i have studio? a great huh where is his studio uh there's no video it's just uh, it's just uh, no, i said uh, where is his studio like, oh at that point that? uh Vidre. he was like in a, a uh, he was like in the basement of his apartment like a half dirt basement bought a board and some some stuff and he is his first studio and now he's like he has he's uh, in his fourth studio now his studio is in Oshlaga uh, and we share it with uh, he shares it with DJ Horg which is a pretty important DJ and producer of the francophone scene he's he's the he's the guy you know he has a very long career so now it's a nice studio but in those days it was a shitty studio but uh, this guy is fucking awesome and I do like uh, my first song was was luck you luck you on uh, on the keep on the line and uh, I do that song, and then I do my solution. So uh, I'm expressing that stuff, and I had written those songs, and I, I could not put them into the band, the, the, the hippie stuff, and they work out. The hippie stuff's not going anywhere as far as the album's supposed to be out. So I kind of say to the guys, like, uh, sad, but like, I know where I want to go. I have stuff to do, and I want to be productive, and I want my music to be on all platforms and distributed and I want to produce the most I've ever produced in my life you know I'm in my 30s now at this point it's 2012 
and uh, I, I'm like, I have to be in control of my fucking music because I want my music to be heard. I cannot lose my time anymore compromising with people. Sorry, guys, you know? So I break up that band. And then, uh, since then, I've been solo. So then, I've been working with Alex Blaine. So basically what happens is Alex, to this day, aside, let's say, the, the last project that I had, other producer, but in general, Alex Blaine will compose a shitload of music, just beats. Sometimes he'll put live guitar, live this, like that. But it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, like uh, a, a basic, uh, uh, just a, a platform for, for beats, uh, basic beats. And then he'll send me his ideas, and then I'll kind of pick and choose, and I'll start writing on the music, and then I'll go back and forth with him uh, to help arrange. Okay, this is cool. Let's put a horn section. Oh, let's put some Latin percussions on this. Oh, let's put some scratch from DJ Horde. And that's how I've been working. So now with my resources, my musicians that I, I, I've had in my past, and his, all his family that he brought, which... Uh, is the uh, Blex Experience is our collective. We we uh, we released some stuff on that name also Blex Experience. Uh, so now I, I that that's my crew, you know, and that's that's how I've been working. So I'm now a solo artist since 2012, and uh, I've never produced as much music that is actually accessible on all platforms that anyone could buy or stream for free and sometimes free downloads, you know, and that. That was important for me at that point. It was like, I, I want to be heard, man. It's not like I want to be popular. I want the stuff to be out, man, on those big platforms. I want people to be able to hear it and like to be in control, man. Okay, I'm writing a song. I'm writing an album, and in six months, it's going to be out. So yeah. So for the last fucking, it's going to come up to ten years soon. So 2012, I started going solo, but still that with one producer that. Is my partner in crime, but still a family of musicians. So that's the progression now. And this is Lucky Lex. This is solo. Yeah. So how did but like? So when you got into that like first project, you just kind of was there like concepts behind it or anything like, or was it just kind of an assortment of songs that you put together? And then when it comes out, how do you actually go about promoting it? Okay. So. Uh, Again, it's very often introspective, personal, emotional, spiritual stuff, um, very real to me. I mean, music for me is therapeutic. Uh, and conceptualizing, uh, when I started this whole project with uh, On The Line, I wanted to be a concept album. So, and for even further than that, I wanted to do a trilogy. I liked like progressive rock bands and all types of shit in my life and I always admire like artists and bands that did trilogies, even like cinema. I was like, how dope would it be to do like concept albums and do a trilogy? So that was in the back of my mind. And then Keep on the Line, yeah, I've played off like a a whole concept album. So the the first song is called Where I'm Going, which is confusion, options. And then uh, it would go to like uh Say What, uh, Can't Keep on the Line. Uh, it, there's three songs that are kind of representative of darkness, depression, all that. And then it goes to like On a Mission. That's like the taking control of your life. And, and it progresses like that. And it, it goes to the, the last song. Uh, I'm blanking right now. Uh, 
anyway, the last song is a, is is about like just happiness. So it's a, the, the first song was like confusion, depression, transitioning, uh, taking control of your life, and happiness. Uh, so that that was the whole concept of keep on the line. Um, so yeah, it played out like that. It was as far as my 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 solo stuff. It was my darkest stuff because I was at that place also in my life, and uh, I very very much with that project and that solo stuff needed to reaffirm my happiness and uh, propulse it with uh, that album in particular. As far as promotion, I mean, I just have, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a independent artist. I'm not on a label, but I have a distribution everywhere. And that's what was most important for me. I did a little bit of shows with, uh, keep on the line i would just do kind of the simple rapper thing so it was like beats on cds or mp3 i would go to activism kind of stuff uh art galleries whatever it was again very artsy uh, and uh, yeah that was also in the years of fucking the uh, whole student manifestations and all that so i participated in that too uh, yeah so I mean, not big promo because I suck in promo. I never found the guy, but at least it's fucking available, you know. And then I did uh, two videos for that album too. I did uh, Where I'm Going with uh, Jay Manifest. Jay Manifest does most of my videos as a director, and I, he's a rapper too. I did some stuff with him, and uh, I did another video from Keep on the Line. So Keep on the Line was uh, my uncle, which a little bit was my dark muse of this project. Uh, like me going through some uh, depressive issues, my uncle, which I really admire, he was at this point in his fifties, uh, uh, was di- diagnosed uh, bipolar, and like totally fell off. You know, like he didn't. Do, he was a, a you know, uh, attempted suicides. Uh, he was committed, in and out, and very much depressed. And uh, he had he's a francophone and he he always liked me a lot because i never judged him and i was always cool with him and he doesn't really know how to talk in english and all that but or express himself what i say but one one day he 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 told me this thing keep on the line you know and it was kind of just weird the way he said it because he doesn't I guess he, it meant something to him, and I, I didn't really... For me, when he said that, I remember, like, operators on the phone, and they were like, okay, keep on the line, or we're going to put you to the uh, next uh, transfer you. And I was like, well, what, what does he mean by keep on the line? And then I got it that it was kind of like, keep, stay balanced, you know, stay balanced and uh, and follow your own path kind of thing, you know? I, I, I understood that that's what he wanted to express. To, but the way he phrased it, and keep on the line. I thought it was powerful, and it was kind of my motto inspired by him that he gave me as a gift. And uh, one of my last songs with actually with uh, Drop of a Dime was called Archetype, and that song was inspired by my uncle Andre too, and that was like a biblical song that was talking about his whole his fantasies that he's an archetype, an archangel, because a lot of time like bipolar though confuse reality with uh, their own beliefs and or, or catalysm or anything else and uh, so archetype became kind of like the transition to my solo thing and keep on the line you know and to see my my uncle kind of degrade mentally inspired me 
to push myself and to be happy and it became even more powerful to make this album and to make it not only for myself but hopefully i could touch people and inspire them you know if they were going through similar issues and uh the last song on that album was actually called beautiful and it was super fucking happy and poppy and cheesy but it had to be that way because that's the, the that's the album that was keep on the line yeah it's a good one <clears throat> um so what else so you're also doing the chef thing this whole time right yeah yeah what's it like being a chef that's rapping in this like what, what's it like doing this at balancing all of this and the opportunities in that world going for you well that's it i've uh, i've since i uh, that that whole part of my life so since i've been an adult been pretty much in kitchens and uh, by that point uh, i was full-on chef or sous chef in all my positions and for me uh, it was uh, my friend uh, olivier that brought me uh, into this world and I just started dishwasher and then started learning cooking and what was cool about the cooking universe is that it's a it's a scene of misfits and bandits and weirdos and artists man like uh, those kitchens are full of fucking freaks and, and awesome people so I could very much relate and very and, and have a lot of fun with my colleagues and also, you can kind of make your own schedule, so it's easy for me to be a musician if I was a cook, because I could always be free for any show, and I just kind of paid enough for me to just continue doing what I want to do and live on my own and this and that. And uh, yeah, so cooking was, it was just about freedom, and it was just about, again, you're, a, you're in a community. When you're a cook, you're in a community, there's a language, and so that that was like super relatable and super important too. I mean, a lot of my fans and a lot of people that filled those smoky bars and venues were cooks, you know, and waiters and dishwashers and weirdos. And so that's, that's been a great journey too. Yeah, for sure. It's probably like an interesting way to almost promote yourself to be in that kind of an environment. Cause why I say that is I've been in an office, but at the same office for over a decade. Yeah. At a certain point, it's the same like hundred people with yeah. very little variations, right? So like you really have to get the fuck out of work. But if your work life can be such a almost revolving door of characters, it's a really powerful way to network. For sure. And like it's party, you know, it's party centrally. Often you finish the shift with a couple of beers. And a lot of people take drugs and shit. Like it's, it's a fun time, you know. Cooks are fucking fun. It can do. It could lead to dangerous places too. That that happens. I've seen some people fucking have problems in that scene too. But uh, it's fun. Like especially in your twenties, to be like working in kitchens and pubs and bars in your twenties and being an artist, whatever art you do, that's like that's the best twenties you can have. Being a musician and a cook, that's fucking awesome shit. Fair enough. Um, so, how do you end up getting linked into the Place Bell situation? Yeah, so uh, evolved from one job to another. Uh, then at one point, it was just like, a, I mean, since I've been a cook, now I'm not, uh, we can get to that later, but uh, 25 years of cooking, you evolve. At one point, you're a chef, chef and sous chef. You 
got a great resume, a wide array of experience, and uh, I've never really looked for a job. I mean, this guy I used to work with is at this place now, so he calls me. Or this, so you you have so many friends, you know, that are at that point chefs, sous chefs, and all around the city, and even all the way to BC, you know, and. Uh, Uh, so it was a friend. It was a friend at Centre uh, Bell, and uh, he put on his Facebook, we're looking for cooks. So I go see him, pass an interview with the chef uh, of the Canadians of Montreal, and uh, he tells me, okay, so you have a great resume, what do you want, and this and that. I said, well, I want a good job, you know, I'm getting older, musician, this and that, but I don't do so much show, I'm more a creator, you know. Uh, so I want to make money. I want to have a good position. Uh, I say, tell you what, put me wherever the fuck you want. For three months, I can do anything you want, any position, any fucking. I'll show you how hard I work. I said, I'm coming here, and you're offering me six, seven dollars less than what I did in my last job for an entry level job. So you have to understand, this is not interesting to me. I'm gonna do three months. I expect at the end of three months to have a big promotion in whatever positions are available. And if not, I'm going to leave because I have a seasonal job in BC, near north of Vancouver. So that'll be that. And then I did it. I worked all the angles and I, I, I applied to all the positions and I got the biggest opening they had, which was the Platte Bell head chef to take care of feeding the Rockets of Laval, the school team of the Montreal Canadiens and all the event co-shows at Place Belle. And that was a new venue, the Place Belle, uh, which is the third uh, biggest arena in Quebec after the Saint Belle and Vidéotron in Quebec. And it was a huge thing. And uh, I was the first chef to, and to this day, because it was closed with COVID, uh, I was the only chef there. I, I've, I've done that journey there. So it was huge. When I got the, the job, I was so, so happy. And... Uh, As prestigious as it is, it, the position is, they didn't have the best installations. You know, the salary was good, but uh, the installations were so-so, and it were a very minimal team. So we had to work really fucking hard in some weird spaces, you know, with not enough of equipment. But I made it happen. And for me, like, when I've had sous chefs and chef positions, it's really about creating, like, a family with my little crew and that they have fun. We listen to hip-hop when we work, we have a good time, and we become friends, and that's when you're, whatever you work in, you have to be happy, and if you're a person that's a boss, I think it's your job also to make your, your, your employees happy, and I mean, to enter that arena, man, and to be in the, uh, the, the whole facilities of professional hockey players, and then to see the, the shows being set up, and the artists, feeding the artists, meeting the artists, to be there when they have, there's no one in the arena to, for the sound checks. You know, like, it's been, that was crazy, man, two and a half years. Man. So I you're like them. watching the sound checks. Do you get to like talk to the artists? Yeah, I've talked to a couple of artists. It's like, a, it's balancing. It's again, like, they're human beings. So it's just like, you have to feel it and you have to be professional and respectful. I mean, uh, let's say uh, Lauren Hill, you know, Lauren Hill, she's known for, like, her character is a little rough and this and that. People say she's a diva. I don't care. I don't know her. I'm not going to judge her, but I'm going to feel her. 
So I see her sound check. First of all, I have fucking chills every time I'm passing next to the stage, going back and forth from one kitchen to another, preparing these meals. I'm listening to all these songs from Lauren Hill for that is for my generation, like the best soul singer out there, you know, with Erica Badu. And I have chills and I cannot believe it. Then she does a sound check. Usually it's like 45 minutes of sound check. She does like over two hours sound check, always stopping her musicians. Very, very uh, like by, like by her way or, and very serious and driven. And like, I'm like, okay, yeah, what I heard is, is, is real, you know? And then she leaves and she comes to the cafeteria and she has her entourage, like six people, all in a circle around her like a force field. And she talks only to her people and she never looks like on the side. She looks straight or she looks to the person in her entourage. So you can tell by the, 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 the body language, she does not want to be bothered and she's very focused. So you know, you know, you're not even, you're not going to talk to her. Then she goes to the cafeteria which is next to my kitchen, and I, I'm the one that has, they're buffets, but they're like high-end buffets. And then uh, I have to make sure everything's okay constantly, go back and forth. Only thing I say to Lauren Hill, she's sitting, she's talking with her people, I just say, uh, she, no one's talking at one point, I just say, oh, uh, Miss Lauren Hill, I just want to tell you, thank you, uh, welcome to Montreal, and thank you for all your beautiful music. It's really touched me. And she just says, thank you. And that's it. And that's all I had to tell her. You have to be respectful of the person, not bother them. But then other experiences were fucking sick, you know, really sick. And uh, we can get to that, you know. For me, like, the Wu-Tang Clan was the sickest shit ever. Tell us about the Wu-Tang Clan experience. Yo, just so you know, I was in the crowd at that show. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about that. So that's the uh, July, I think, 2019 or whenever the fuck it was. Um, I don't remember yeah. when it was. Yeah. Noah, exactly. it was there. And yeah. um, I was not having the same experience you had. I went in. I watched the DJ guy. I watched the Wu-Tang. I went home. But tell us about your version of that night. So, like we, we've known from the beginning, the, they changed my life. They were a huge influence, you know. Uh, so, I've seen the Wu-Tang a lot also. I've, I've seen them so many times at this point in fucking Vancouver solo member and group right uh, in Vancouver and Montreal every fucking time uh, in Toronto and in New York so I'm, I'm a fucking super fan you know I, I bought all the books I have read every fucking article I fuck, I followed all these motherfuckers I love the Wu-Tang so this is a dream come true so I come into work uh, I go buy fucking because I don't have vinyl I just have CD collection and uh, my MP3s and shit. So I go buy the fucking uh, 36 chamber vinyl, of course, a nice uh, silver marker, and because uh, I'm geeking out for sure. So uh, I prepare. I'm with my little team, and everything's fucking beautiful. It's all set. It's clean. I know these guys. The, the, the history of these guys. I know that that RZA is vegan. I know uh, a little bit their lifestyles. You know. So we have, uh, for lunch, it's like a sandwich bar, you know, so a burger bar. So it's the uh, Beyond Meat just came out. So that's the craze for the vegans. So we got the whole vegan section, then we got the, the meat section. And then we got the salad bar, and then we got this and that. And uh, then it's all set, and I'm all waiting, and I have my vinyl on the other side and shit. And uh, I'm nervous as fuck, dude. Like, I'm, 
I'm shaking. I'm just waiting for that moment. I had met RZA at like a signing. I never go to signings, but I went to for a Jazz Fest signing at one point. And I took a picture with RZA and I signed like one of his uh, Digi Snacks CD there. And uh, other than that, I never geek out. I never go to signings and stuff. So I'm fucking nervous, dude. I'm shaking and stuff. And I'm with some people from Saint Bell that always come, like some uh, some managers and stuff. And I'm telling them this is this is my best band in the world. If you tell me you can only listen to one band, it's Wu Tang, you know. I'm like, I can't fucking believe that I'm gonna see all these guys here and I'm cooking for them. This is a dream. So then I'm preparing and all that. First person to come into the the cafeteria is the RZA. I see the RZA and I freeze and I just say, the Abbott. And I'm like a fucking kid. I'm just like, the Abbott. And he's like, boom, boom, what's going on? Boom, boom, what's good? We're eating, we're eating, you know? And then I'm like, oh, we have a burger bar. I know you're vegan. We have some Beyond Burgers. Oh yeah, I got Beyond Burgers. Oh, that's the shit. He's with you at YDB. So that's like, I'm like, that's the first tour where fucking YDB represents his fucking father, ODB, so that's touching as fuck. And his, he's with his uncle, Riza. I'm like, wow, this is fucking awesome. And then they start, they they go, they get their food and all that. I start talking to, to them a little bit, you know. I remember one moment where I shake the hand of uh, YDB and uh, said, uh, hey, man, I just want to tell you I'm a huge fan of your father, and uh, I want to tell you... Uh, how much I respect what you're doing right now to to carry on his legacy and how proud he would be, you know? And, man, he was touched, you know? He's a human being. He was like, ah, oh, thank you, man. That means a lot, you know? And then it was like, uh, every time I go back and forth, I was, like, geeking out and blurring some shit out, you know? It was like, Rizzo's really cool. And it was cool because they were sitting together, I guess, an uncle and nephew, and they, they stayed, like, for almost five hours, those two in the cafeteria they could have been in the bus they could have been in their private lodge uh, but no they're 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 cafeteria man very normal talk about whatever and uh they're enjoying their meal and every time i'm coming every half an hour or something geeking out i'm like dude i've been listening to you this first six chamber i saw you guys maybe 20 times man this that i said one point i say oh the, the geekiest fucking shit ever because i have a song on the I have a song called uh, Connect on the album Sound Barriers, and that's with Kinetic Nine from Killer Army Wu-Tang. So Kinetic Nine was the hype man of RZA when he, for a long time when he did his solo stuff, Kinetic Nine was his hype man. And on every RZA solo album, Kinetic Nine is featured on one song or the other, and he's from Killer Army. I hooked up with Kinetic Nine when Twitter came out, I hooked up with him and we did a song by distance and that was that. I ended up on fucking uh, a Wu-Tang blog spot and this and that and all types of Wu-Tang shit. I got some followers. I, I premiered on the uh, Next Level Ice-T uh, serious radio thing. That was the premiere of the, the song. That was some hype shit, right? So I, I, I'm in, fr I, I, I cross fucking RZA. I'm all nervous like a fucking nerd and I, I'm like, yeah, RZA, I know Kinetic 9. Say, yeah, Kinetic 9's my man. I say, yeah, uh, I did a rap song with him. Like, I do, like, total nerd. I, I was like, yeah, I, I do a little rapping. I said, I said, I do a little rapping, like a fucking <laughs> dweeb. And then he just, I did a rap song with him. I do a little rapping, like a fucking geek, dude, all nervous. 
And then he's just like laughed a little bit. He's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Like probably not believing me at all. <laughs> so every time I pass next to him, I'm saying some stupid shit, dude. But he was cool. He was super nice, man. Then fucking uh, Capadonna comes in. Capadonna's pretty big, you know. He's a pretty massive guy. Tall. Comes in. He's like, oh, oh what's up? It smells like a high school cafeteria in here. What are we eating? I'm like, I hear that voice, man, that rugged voice. I'm like, Capadonna. He's like, yeah. I'm like, dude, welcome. He's like, a burger bar, this and that. And like, oh, cool, cool. And he sits down on his own, starts eating. Fifteen minutes later, he's like, Do you, did you cook all this? I'm like, hell yeah, I cooked all this. That's fucking good. You did a good job. I said, yeah, well, you know, I tried my best for the best. He said, you did your best, man. You know, dude, those fucking phrases, I'm going to remember till I die, man. These little phrases, you know, these little interactions as a super fan. Then fucking Chef comes in. He's all short, man. He's all short and round and cute. Chef <laughs> comes in <laughs> with his big smile. He's the smiliest guy. I'm like, Chef. He comes in. I freeze. I'm like, Chef. He's like, hey, hey, how you doing, man? I'm like, good. He said, oh, what are we eating at? He said, we're eating burgers. Cool, awesome, this and that. And then he's serving, and I'm just kind of standing there next to the door, looking around. <laughs> and then my dishwasher's not, at that point, is next to me, and he's like, holy shit, that's wreck one, you know? And then uh, he's like, this is nice, this is nice buffet, this is, this is, this is high class, this is good, man. So I like this, a lot of stuff. And then he looks at me, he says, I have my vest, it says chef on it, the Roquette, nice uh, designer vest. And then uh, he says, are you the chef? This is the chef talking to me. I said, are you the chef? He said, are you the chef? I said, yeah, I'm the chef. He said, you look like a chef. Dude, the chef tells me you look like a chef. I'm like, thanks, man. Can I have a picture with you? <laughs> yeah, man, no problem. <laughs> I take a picture with the chef. <laughs> I'm like, this is out of this, fuck this fucking world. I'm a chef, huge fan of Wu-Tang. I'm taking a fucking picture with Rec One, the chef that just told me I'm the chef. <laughs> I can amazing. die, dude. I can fucking die, you know? Last person that I had a, a real interaction with is Ghostface Killer. He's one of the fucking, like, strongest members of the Wu-Tang, you know? And so constant, so many classic albums, dude. And he's a big fucking guy. So he comes in, only person with security. I'm like, okay, shit. Shit is serious. Comes in. I'm like, Ghostface. He's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, good, good, welcome to Montreal. The food, if you need anything, tell me this and that. And then uh, he serves, he's kind of, seems on a little bit on the phone, a little bit in, in his, his mind and stuff. He does his thing. He eats, his security is standing in the, the doorway. Uh, I come back and uh, uh, at this point, I, I, I made Chef uh, sign the album. Also, I wanted those signatures. So Chef uh, signed the album. Cap signed the album at this point. YDB signed the album at this point. I had asked RZA. He told me to wait. So I wait. Uh, I want that, too. I'm totally fucking geeking out. And then uh, I come back. I, I think he's finished because his plate is on the side, and he seems finished. Goes. So I'm like, uh, excuse me, Ghostface. You think you can sign my album like a fucking 12-year-old kid? And then he's like, I'm eating, man. <laughs> I'm eating, man, after. 
I'm like, oh, oh shit, I'm sorry, I didn't want to barter, you know. <laughs> and he's like, no, no problem. It's just like I don't want to get your your vinyl dirty and shit. I'm like, okay, it's cool. He said, I'll let you know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then I I just feel bad for a moment. I'm like, oh fuck, I fucking disturbed him, you know. And then whatever, back and forth, back and forth. Go back to the bring something into the buffet. Dude is pushes his fucking chair. He's like all spread out and shit. Fucking ghost face killer. Then he looks at me and he says, You ready, boss? <laughs> I'm like a fucking 10 year old child. I'm like, Yes, yes. And I just go run, get my vinyl. And he signs the vinyl. <laughs> Fuck, man. So that's that. I, I don't see the other guys. They're in their buses or whatever. And uh, so I see these five guys, which is huge. And then uh, they got, they leave, they do a sound check, they come back for supper. Okay, this is the moment, man. So it's like uh, ratatouille, all these vegetables and lasagna, veg, veggie and all that, the vegan guys. And then they eat. Some people eat, some people from the staff. There's less of them at that point. And then Riza comes at last minute, and he has all, and he's the general, and he has all his gear on with his nice jewelry and shit, looking sharp. And he comes real quick, and then uh, he comes to see me. He says, he says, hey, uh, hey, chef, uh, you still have some uh, those Beyond Meat burgers? And uh, and we changed the menu, right? But on the on the fucking uh, in the fucking dishwasher zone. Uh, right next to the garbage, there's some Beyond Meat burgers, but they're supposed to be in the garbage because I can't leave, I can't give food that's three, four hours old. I'm going to poison the fucking Wu-Tang Clan. So then I'm like, this is the moment where the RZA asks me for something that he wants, you know? <laughs> He's like, hey, chef, do you, you still have those Beyond Meat burgers? And I, I'm like, I'm fucking, my, I'm ripped. My soul is ripped apart. I'm just like... Uh, no, man. No, man. I'm sorry. We have a uh, ratatouille and some vegan uh, lasagna and all this stuff. Like, yeah, I really wanted to be on burger, you know? And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. We changed the menu. He said, you don't have any more in the back? I said, no, I cooked everything, you know? And then he looks in the dishwasher section, and then he's like, what about those? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, a, I'm like, feels so bad, dude. I'm saying no to, like, one of my idols, dude. And I'm like, they're supposed to be in the garbage. I'm really sorry. I, I can't give you those. I don't want to, you to be sick, man. He's like, okay, fair, fair. That's good. No problem, man. And then I asked him, you think you can sign my vinyl? <laughs> After denying him a Beyond Burger, dude. He's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's way less enthused than you want in this moment. <laughs> Dude, that was the day I knew I could fucking die after that, man. That was the best it could get in kitchen. <laughs> I think single-handedly, that is the longest single story. Yo, Chris used the whole thing as a clip. We're already on the Wu-Tang blog one time. They might put that clip on the Wu-Tang blog. <laughs> um, the whole thing is a clip. Though. It's amazing, dude. It is really one of... It was incredibly entertaining to listen to your passion just carries it like you can't that was like nobody can really with that much detail describe one of the best moments of their lives in my opinion like nobody can <laughs> until we get lucky likes but how many of us like really get the opportunity 
to make food for the Wu-Tang Clan, get complimented yeah. by the Wu-Tang Clan, yeah. interact with them, have all these goofy moments, because you're, you're stuck with them, right? Like, it's not even, let's say they've gone completely sour. You're still spending the rest of the day with the Wu-Tang Clan. That's amazing. The RZA one, too. Dude, I was, wasn't expecting RZA to poke his head behind and to look for the fucking burgers. Like, oh, my gosh. Do you have the record? I know you probably don't have it with yeah, you, but you I still have, have it? That's yeah, on my wall. I put it uh, in a frame, yeah. You got those five signatures on it. It's cool because I could have got all the signatures, but I got the signatures of the people I actually interacted with, you know? I have moments with. That's special, so, man. Yeah, so I know it's, it's probably not going to be anywhere near as exciting as the Wu-Tang Clan. But who else did you get to interact with? I got one that's pretty cool. So, uh, oh, there was a lot, man. But interacting, my my second best is, uh, so Lauren Hill comes, and she's it's in, a, in the, she's doing like a hip-hop kind of festival. There's some stuff in the street going on, Lauren Hill in the uh, stadium. And last minute, like last couple of days before, they book Eric B. and Rakim to open up for her. Oh, so nice. this is yeah. So this is like fucking twenty years plus that Rakim and Eric B did not perform together because they split, right? So he's the god, fucking. He's Rakim Allah, the god. Any fucking MC for my generation, and even the new, well, maybe not the young young guys, but a lot of people will put them put him in the top five. A lot of people will say he's the one of the most influentials that really fucking changed hip hop forever, you know. And he's one of the best lyricists. So I was excited about that, man. I'm like fucking Rakim, dude. That's that's special, dude. So fuck, he he was there before I got into hip hop, man. Yeah, he changed everything. So that's that. Uh, I, I had that interaction with Lauren Hill. There's not a lot of people in the cafeteria. Then Rakim and Eric B get there a little later, and they're not coming to the cafeteria. They're in their private uh, artist lodge, and. Uh, they want a hot meal brought to them. So I have the hot meal prepared, and then I, I leave with the, the waitress, with my little trolley, and I enter the artist lodge, and there's fucking Eric B that's on the side with some other guy, like their tech guy or something. He's on the side, and then right in, standing in the middle of the room is Rakim. And you can't miss Rakim. He's so recognizable, you know? And I just like again mesmerized man and like humbled and uh I, I i i get into the room with the trolley with the food i say uh rock him a lot welcome to montreal it's an honor and then he's like thank you thank you it's my pleasure and i'm like this is shit you know in my mind then i bring i bring the to the hot table the the, the food with the trolley and Rakim's waiting not far from me and i bring the food and in one rotation from bringing it out of my trolley and turning to put it in the hot table, I say, I look at Rakim in one rotation and I say, Critic, critics and biters don't know where my source of light is. Still leave authors and writers with all the writers. And I say, that's one of the best lines in hip hop history ever. And then he's like, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Then he knows I'm a fucking super fan. I quote him. I fucking rapped. One of my favorite lines that was hugely influential that made me think, like, the universe, you know? To Rakim. I was like, whoa. And I say, can I have a picture with you, man? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. 
I start shaking, dude. And then, <laughs> then I give my camera to the waitress. And I'm like, take this picture. This guy's like so fucking legendary. And uh, you can see the picture on Instagram and we're kind of holding hands, you know. And um, and I'm shaking like a motherfucker. I'm holding his hand and I'm like, <laughs> and looking at the camera. And he's looking at the camera. And then I whisper, I'm sorry, I'm shaking. <laughs> And she takes the picture. The picture is really good. And then when I'm going to leave the room, Eric B. looks at me. And he's like, hey, come here. And then <laughs> I'm like, yeah, can I get you anything? Anything you need, dude? Can you find some weed, man? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like fucking, because I'm that point. I mean, I'm smoking every fucking day. I have an ounce at home. I'm like, fuck, I don't bring weed at work. I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, fuck, the day that, you know, the person that the day that someone asked me, I'm like, uh, well, I'll try to find you some. And, and then I kind of ask people that I can't really mix that shit in my work, you know, I kind of ask the cleaners of the place if they have weed or something. Then I, I cross him two more times before the show. And like, do you find out weed, man? I'm like, dude, no, sorry, I've been asking people. I can't find any. He's like, oh, okay, okay. Then he does the show. They're opening up. I was on the side of the stage for the whole show. I finished my at that point. I'm on the side of the stage for the whole show. It's classic fucking Eric Bean Rakim, dude. It's like so sick. Follow the leader, all that shit. And then the show finishes, all that. I go clean up in the kitchen. I'm leaving. And when I'm leaving, Eric B is smoking a joint with someone, like a sound tech. And he's like, oh, it's all good, man. I found some. Thanks anyway. The food was good. All right, cool, man. <laughs> I'm like, that's pretty incredible, though. That's incredible. <laughs> so, again, like, two two times, man, I have, like, people I really admire ask me for something, and I have to say no, you know? <laughs> it feels bad, man. <laughs> I can see how it feels bad, and it's a complicated thing. Um <laughs> You want to lose the job over like, well, Eric B wanted weed. <laughs> exactly, I guess Bell, I guess Plas Bell riders don't come with weed. <laughs> <laughs> they should. It's legal, fuck. Was it legal? Though? I mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. Yeah. 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 That's that's amazing. Um, I don't know who else you met that was fascinating from that era, but like. You just tell these stories really fucking well. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Had some good times there. Um, sure. So yeah, then COVID comes and messes yeah. messes that up, I guess. Yeah, that was the end of that that journey. But it is what it is. I mean, it's good. Since then, I mean, uh, COVID comes. Well, uh, say to to transition to that uh, the end of the story so uh, 2013 I released uh, Keep on the Line 2013 I sell everything I own I'm living in a, in a condo in St. Henry I have a dope fucking sports car it's a Datsun 280ZX1980 10th anniversary you can check that on the Instagram so I have everything materialistic that I kind of want and I'm sad and shit, and I'm doing this uh, fucking keep on the line thing. It's a concept album, and I'm like, fuck material, you know? 
and uh, I go play a Shambhala festival in BC, which is like the biggest non-sponsor corporate uh, festival in Canada. Some hippie shit for five days. There's like fucking 25,000 people in this valley. It's fucking sick. Shambhala festival. Now, that's the first place I played. It was kind of like the demo of the album to come. So I had five songs. I was go doing that album. I played there. And I come back from there. I have five songs. In that journey of uh, like a week, I write five songs. So I write basically the whole, the rest of the album in that journey. And I have this very great experience with this kind of spiritual music, electro uh, music festival, uh, a lot of free living, like the nudist, uh, techno geeks, furries. Uh, hip hoppers, uh, just name it. Everyone is there, and everyone was fucking free with no judgment and no corporations. It was just a beautiful thing. And I did a little show with this collective. I was this activism artist collective. And I come back from there uh, super inspired. I write the whole Keep on the Line album, except for the title, the main track that I knew the title was Keep on the Line. And I decide I'm going to sell everything I, I, I own. I decide that's bullshit. So within that, that year, so uh, September 2012 to the release of Keep on the Line in June, I sell and give away everything I have. And finally, a couple of days before my lease comes out, I had already launched the album. I trade that sports car for a camper, a 15-foot uh, Westphalia from the 80s. I leave with my cat and uh, my boxes of CDs and some clothes and some uh, a PA. I can like play. I can set up a PA and DJ or play music out of my camper. And I leave, and I go to see my mom, like in Bas Saint-Laurent, seven hours from Montreal in the east, near Gaspésie. And I go there, I'm supposed to stay there for a week. Someone hits my fucking camper, and I'm stuck there. And the insurance is complicated and all that. And I'm stuck there for the summer. So I work there in a kitchen in this fucking English garden epic place. And during that time, I'm super isolated. I'm supposed to be touring Canada independently and fucking playing out of a camper or some hippie shit, right? And I'm stuck there. I don't have my camper anymore. So I have to turn around and do that. Then Twitter is coming out. So I'm like, what the fuck is this Twitter? So I get on Twitter, and I see that you can contact people directly that are pretty known, you know? So I'm like, shit, I'll just, I'll just put some energy into my relations on on the internet, and I already have an album to promote, so I can do that shit. So that's it. I fucking uh, hook up with this French rapper, uh, some black power activism, uh, Neg Lyrical, have a couple of songs with him. Uh, Martinique from Paris, we do some stuff. I hook up with Kinetic Nine from Kill Army, Wu-Tang, and I do an EP, Sound Barriers, of seven songs. I, I, I write the whole thing, and I, I, can, I, I hook up while I'm uh, working and living with my moms, man. And for like a four months period, come back. I got the camper fixed up. I go up, up uh, all around Quebec, come back to Montreal, go see Alex Blaine in the studio, record seven songs in five days, sleeping in my camper and parkings. And then I leave. And that's sound barriers. And then I cross the whole fucking country, go to BC, and uh, it's in December to 2013. So. I had released in June 2013 the first album, then I released the second one in December. And uh, 
at that point, I was kind of like uh, trying to integrate myself in my, my BC living. I was still living in the camper, very minimalistic living, uh, pretty poor. And uh, yeah, I got that album came out, made some friends, had a good time, worked a lot, sold the camper, lived for fucking four years with my backpack and a locker in Montreal, a locker in uh, Vancouver, renting ha- renting furnished apartments, no telephone. It was just like off the grid kind of thing. When when you're supposed to be promoting and shit and that and the no, I'm just off the grid, dude. I'm like, fuck it. But still, my shit is, is out there. It's out there, so I can talk about it. I can hook up with people. I can make some internet moves. And that's that. And then, uh, basically, 2014, I uh, kind of have this spiritual fucking awaken, and I work on what divine is. And uh, I want to do, like, my spiritual opus and something that I believe... Uh, can be very inspirational as an album and very complex musically, very large, and a lot of musicians uh, will be on this album. I, uh, I'm working with Alex Blaine on all these projects I'm talking about. And then basically, uh, we, we start working on this uh, this uh, What Divine Is album. After like four months of work, I'm back in Montreal, after four months of working on this album, and... Uh, going through motions in my mind, uh, I decide to go to a Vipassana silent retreat of 10 days of meditation. So you're basically meditating six to seven hours a day for 10 days in total silence. You cannot write, you cannot, you cannot uh, talk, you cannot uh, do anything else than you eat in the morning, you eat noon, you fast for the rest of the day, you meditate one hour period six or seven times a day, you go back to sleep, you can't. You cannot communicate it anyway. It was very hard. It was like a boot camp of meditation. Your body goes through stuff. Your mind goes through stuff. I'm I'm having lucid dreams. I'm having all types of of stuff is getting resolved in my 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 spirit and in my mind. And I come out of there. And oh, when we break silence, everyone goes to the cafeteria and they start talking. And I go straight next to the meditation hall like alone. And I write a song, uh, and the it's called Liberation. It's on what divine is. I featured the uh, J Manifest on that one. I write that song I had composed in my mind three days before, and I could not write it. And I was like, I, I hope I can remember this because it's very much what I feel, and it's a good poetry, you know. So I fucking I kept it. I kept it. And then I write that song. I come back from there, and I'm like, kind of transformed. I'm very, and I'm not. I'm detox from everything that goes on for like six months and I meditate for like a good six months, uh, at least one hour a day in the morning, sometimes at night and I'm keeping it because I, I want to get a hundred percent into this concept. Again, talking about concept albums and, uh, I come back and I call my, my producer, Alex Blaine. And I say, hey, you know, that album we've been working on. He's like, yeah, well, shit changed. <laughs> I said, uh, pretty much going to scrap everything. <laughs> so basically, I'm rewriting everything except for the song, What Divine Is, which I wrote in Vancouver, which was like the flame of the whole thing, the spark, right? That that was a, another special moment. I said, except for that song, I'm rewriting the whole album. And it's cool for you because we're going to keep all the beats, 
except for that beat. But we have to re-record everything, and it's probably going to take another six, seven months to do this album. So I finished fucking doing that album. It comes out in 2015, and uh, I worked a year on that album, and it was pretty fucking pretty complex mu musically. We went a lot of places. There's the horn sections, Latin percussions, scratch, full band, upright bass on some songs, violin on some songs, uh, theremin. Uh, there's a lot of shit going on, a lot of fucking different concepts, and uh, we did a great launch with, uh, well, we got Blue Rum 13 on the title track, which was amazing, probably to this day my best collaboration, he really, he really was touched by what the line is, that song, we did a video, we did the launch with him, with the full band, there's some videos on YouTube of, of that, that show, uh, Billy Kuhn on Mahoyal, and uh, yeah. That was the last really, really big project I did, you know? And uh, from there, I mean, I worked uh, with uh, Black's Experience a lot. Uh, we did two punk albums and a bunch of collaboration tracks. Just released a lot of shit, man. That's it. All the way to uh, fucking uh, COVID, where I, I, I turned around and I said, I don't, I'm not working this and that, and then I did steps my last thing and that's pretty much the journey there's more of it i mean there's always more <laughs> so so what do you what are you doing post chef life yeah so that's it well i was i mean i have friends i have restaurants you know and so many fucking chef friends and all that and i was pretty saddened by how uh, i think the government kind of like targeted and persecuted restaurant owners and restaurants and they got fucked, you know, and uh, I'm kind of stuck, and I'd questioned myself on my, my job for a long time, you know, and it's like, after Wu-Tang working, you go, <laughs> and no, it gets hard, you know, it gets hard as a job, and uh, maybe I want to try something else. I never had the guts to go to school, but uh, <clears throat> I don't like school. But then I'm stuck in COVID, so first I'm a little fucking confused and depressed like everyone, a couple months. Then I do a song uh, called Distance. That's on my SoundCloud. With my cousin did a beat, like an electro, really cool song, actually. That kind of motivated me. Then I come back, I'm like, ah, oh, I have to do music. So I finish the Step album. I start working on that. I had started working on that uh, a year before, put it aside. Because that was a family concept album. It was about relations, about family. I was a stepfather to a young child, and from one year old to three years old, and I wanted to express that, you know. That became the breakup and other stuff, so that became with itself another concept album. And I did that, and I was doing food trucks. I had been doing food trucks in the summertime, so I liked that lifestyle a lot. I had worked with the campers and shit. So one day I'm doing this food truck last summer, and I'm in traffic, and I sold these truckers with the big rigs, and my mind just tells me, like, hey, Alex, what do you like better, cooking or driving? I'm in a car right now, you know? I say, I like better driving. He says, you should be a fucking trucker, man. You know, you should be, you like life on the road, you like road trips, you should be a trucker. So yeah, 44 years old, man, I decided to go do a five-month trucking program. I just graduated, I just finished. I'm going to start my, my first job now. Fucking awesome. Still doing music, too. That's cool. Yeah, that's like a big story, though. <clears throat> so to recap, you start off traveling the world 
on some import export stuff with your parent or mom and you're doing a whole bunch of stuff in the Anglo community then you get thrown into the Franco community after living in Miami I believe you spent a year there too then in there your whole world gets kind of thrown into a whole different direction over Quebec politics <laughs> and then you get ingratiated into music because of a Jackson 5 concert where your mom finagled your way into like this wonderful fucking spot where you just got the whole fucking experience this leads you on this like fucking journey where you just end up fucking learning guitar and playing in bands get bored of that shit go down the fucking uh wow fucking skateboarding for a while snowboarding like these are all things right that's just the beginning part then you get into music for real where you're like fucking pivotal and live music hip-hop performances in the city whatever anyone says back then fact is if you did it then it helped to create the now and there are definitely live band hip-hop experiences today. And you did that shit with the jazz folks. Then you moved into, like, the fucking funk stuff, I believe. And, like, we all... Us, yo, I remember the fuck you part of the story, too. Like, you just became a fuck you band. Like, and you pulled that off. Because that was also something you were able to do. Man, and then it just, like, just is migration into the solo career with the chefing and all that. It's, like, it's a pretty, like, full story that just ends in there, like, and now I'm a trucker who makes music. Dude, you're fucking awesome. Thank you, man. I never talked so long to someone in such in depth. I, this could be a movie. Someone could script this right now, and we could, you know, we could uh, fucking put some actors into this, and this would be an entertaining movie, man. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's the thing. It's like there's a lot of people in this scene, right? But if you were to ask people how many people are in this scene, everybody guesses a number that's nowhere near as big as I think it is. And that's just my, my opinion, uh, just looking at the data of the situation. There's so many pockets. There's so many boroughs. Like, there are 150,000 people in NDG. And I think LaSalle's a little bigger. Those are just two boroughs, right? Like, just these are bigger than entire fucking hip-hop scenes of, like, buffaloes and shits, you know? Like, just, like, to have context for, like, how many humans actually live in this area. And as I hear all these stories... I think there's a little bit of an issue of pride and self-confidence in Montreal and believing in ourselves for what is possible or what can be done. And I think part of it is if you try to Google this shit, good for, especially in English. I don't know what the fuck exists in French, but I know there's a lot more of it. So in English, how do you find that pride in your city if you can't even find the history of the city? So like to be able to hear you describe a lot of that stuff, even like, I must be real. How many of us were curious about food at the at Place Bell and shit? I was curious. I never thought about fucking chefing up with artists. Like, I have one question about that. Did you get a lot of, like, weird requests from them? Or was it, like, a generalized thing? Because I forgot to ask that while we were there. But shit, that's been on my mind, too. It's not so weird. It's, I think the days of the... Oh, I'm generalizing, maybe. It was my experience. I think the days of sex, drugs, rock, and roll are a little behind us. I, what what was like more healthy living by uh, you know like uh, bio this and that and veganism and that, that was a lot of the demand uh, oh Aesop Rocky asked us for 50 white bath towels so I don't know if he brought his own lube but I think he had an orgy or something <laughs> but uh, no uh, nothing super weird I mean some nice bottles nice bottles of liquor and yeah, a lot of healthy living, a lot of healthy eating. 
if you don't always expect that, but it's more and more. And of course, like guys like Wu Tang or even Offspring or that, they've been doing it for so long. I mean, of course they're healthy living at this point because they're still alive, you know. But no, nothing like really crazy. Really nothing. Not in my experience, and even I would have heard about it if I didn't see it. So nothing yeah. that crazy. That's not that, that crazy. I think times are different, man. And like, I mean, everyone's so like. Uh, scrutinized now with all the internet and different, uh, different apps and the social media. I think more than ever now, I think if you're in a public figure, you kind of have to be a little careful also. And, uh, but, uh, in general, I think people are pretty cool. I never had also an asshole experience. I have a leave me to my space experience, but that's just normal. I never had an asshole experience really. No, that's that's good to hear though, and it's interesting to think that everybody in the professional world is driven towards health. Now, now why I say that is because I have this like idea in my mind that sometimes people aren't trying to replicate the big leagues so much as they're trying to be the thing you do after the big leagues. Sometimes, so the Wu Tang show ends at eleven, the next show is going to be ready to go, kind of thing. But if you look at the big leagues, it's like fucking healthy. It's fucking seven to like eleven. It's like all these things where it's like they're not really parties so much as giant corporate events like it's almost like a work conference in terms of tone yeah and that's a fascinating thing for me because like i'm just trying to figure like how do you create a culture that will actually attract money not 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 just like i'm talking about like people who want to just throw money at your shit probably has to be healthy that's the one thing i would take away yeah. from that i mean music if you talk it the beginning of this journey, we're talking about around 81, 83, Thriller, you know? That's the best-selling album in all time. And, and never again will those sales be matched, man. Because today, people don't buy that much music. There's a lot of illegal downloading. There's a lot of streaming. There's not a lot of revenue from your actual product of music. So you, you get revenue from, from publicity, and everyone endorses products also. And it's a live concert. And now with the fucking last year of COVID, man, like these, even these legendary acts, a lot of people, man, like Capadonna and shit, they counted on those fucking tours, you know? They have a lot of kids and shit. So mm -hmm. I, I just, I, I just want to see fucking shows again, you know? Like, like, especially now, artists need to do fucking live music. It's, it's the biggest money cow out. It's out there. Like they don't make that much music with their their music with their actual songs. I mean, the biggest ones do, of course, Jay Z and this and that. But you know, a guy like fucking let's say, Aesop Rock, you know, Delta Delta Funk, you know, those guys, man, they make money with their fucking tours in small and medium venues. You know, they don't have a big endorsement. They don't. So I mean, especially for fucking hip hop, that's the heart of hip hop. That's the that's the best people, man, in hip hop. With we need to bring that stuff back, man. The festivals and the, those little medium shows. We really need to bring that back. Man. I definitely think it's coming. I mean, we're in a green zone now. Give it yeah. like what everybody. I just got an email saying, "Hey, buddy, why don't you schedule your second vaccination a little bit earlier?" Just get that a little bit earlier so we can get this shit running a little bit faster. Come on, buddy. We just need to get everybody at the two vaxes so we can flick a switch. Um, 
And I mean that. I'm pretty sure that's what Quebec's doing right now. Because I'm pretty sure Quebec also really wants that. I know, like, well, Montreal is an election this year. So depending on who wins that election will greatly impact um, this exact topic. So y'all in Montreal should probably fucking pay attention to your local politics if you give a shit about, like, your local music scene. Because, yeah, it's it's going to matter, actually. Um, anyway. I appreciated having you here because, man, like I said, going into depth with people who were there and who saw things or even learning about how you could, like, sample off of VHSs back in the day and that kind of ingenuity. It's just, like, inspiring and doing what we can to document the history of the scene across the stories of people is the best thing I can do to do something. (laughs) It's the best thing I can bring to it. Fucking awesome, man. Thank you a lot, bro. And, uh, um, really great 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 and i appreciate having you here i appreciate also just uh do you have any like thing you want to like plug last minute type thing as we like the I mean, wrap up part all your links are in the description slash i've been yeah, popping up the whole time I mean, if people uh are on spotify like follow me you know if you if you buy music well maybe encourage me if, if you want to use something you maybe not the last album step but all the other albums actually after like a year of my release, usually I put it free on SoundCloud. So SoundCloud has all my songs from uh, Keep on the Line, Sound Barriers, What Divine Is as a free download. So uh, that's a gift to the people if they want that. And they can follow me on Instagram. And they can follow my, my YouTube. They can check my video for a new one. And just, it doesn't matter that, that much the popularity. I, I just want people to connect with the art, with the music. So maybe take the time to listen to someone else you know yeah i appreciate that ismail asked uh if you're working on new music uh not at the moment because it's been a, a lot about the school uh actually i am but uh that will be probably more uh it's a band i mean now uh, i did a collabo with a band a year ago uh they're called tribal bones uh they're a heavy metal band, actually, because <laughs> I did punk in, in other shit, too, right? So Black Experience has on the band camp uh, two, two punk albums, and uh, I sing a lot on that shit. I'm old school punk. And then I did this collabo uh, it's not released yet uh, with Tribal Bones, um, and then they invited me in their band because they loved it. So I guess the direction is going still metal, but it's a little bit of that rap core influence and different stuff. Get it. So we're going to uh, do an EP this summer. We have our songs ready. We're going to go in studio with Alex Lane. And I guess maybe October, November, Tribal Bones will be like the new format with me uh, singing in the band. So yeah, that's different. People like some harder shit. Metal yeah, that's stuff. my cup of tea. Very much my cup of tea. That's it for me. Like I said, talking to, like that darker hip-hop, but also... Rage Against the Machine, all that, that's big influences for me, you know, and it, he, like tripping up as a guitar player on Slayer and stuff, that I have that influence, so. so now I can express that, it's really fun. I've been also practicing with this band every two weeks or so, so to have a band that I can physically, well, there was months we could not, but uh, to have people you can actually jam with and create with the whole, as a band, had been a while, it had been uh, since 2013, I had not composed in a band format even though i have live musicians on my solo stuff so that's uh, the next stuff to come up yeah tribal bones we'll have a video too 
So I'd What's say up? check that out, the October maybe, Tribal Bones. Yeah. That's incredible. And thank y'all for watching too, because it's always more fun. Shout out Golden Jenny from Norway. It's always fun to just see people there. For me, at least, it creates more of like a show dynamic, you know, it makes it more fun and alive. But it's just cool uh, that that happened. Shout out all the people in the future watching and the, the YouTubes or the whatever podcast thing, etc. that you're on. Uh, appreciate everyone for real, real special thanks to the patrons. It's Milk and Am, Secrets, Patrick, Jonathan, Brian, CJ, Black Hurricanes, Lindo Williams, Scribble, the dope support we do. Patreon.com slash behind that suit if you want to, too. On that note, it was super great to have you here, Lucky Lex. I really enjoyed this episode. I'm going to start the raid. So live long and prosper, everyone.